This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. I sit down to have conversations with people to discuss their lives, their careers, hear their stories, and find out what moves and drives them. My guest today is Don Barletti, a local Southern California kid who became a first lieutenant in the Vietnam War. After the war, he found himself working in a small local newspaper. To say Don is a photojournalist is an understatement. Over the last 40 years, Don has won every major photo award, from the Robert F. Kennedy Award, the United Nations Children's Fund Award, the Robert Polk Award, and the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Feature Photography. You're blackie, aren't you? I bet you are. Yeah. I said, if you are blackie, you're pretty famous. And let me tell you what story I'm doing. And I went through the whole scenario about being from a big American newspaper, the whole migration. And I said, you know, I know, I know your group. They ride the train and said, you are really helping people. I wasn't being disingenuous. Right. You, you are enabling people to move, even though it's a, the terrible tragedy. <laughs> Rob them first, you know. Well, you know. Yeah, it was the undeclared <laughs> ticket that they had to buy. But anyway, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm trying to save my own frickin' skin. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. We've had such guests as award winners of the Silver Star, Emmy winners, and photography professor Michael Katata. Well, I, I read somewhere that, like, the majority of people stop learning after the age of 25. Right, And that yes. has always terrified me. And so I went back for my MFA at 52. Good for you. That's That was crazy. And I was like, uh, this. so my mantra is, look, how old am I going to be in three years if I don't do this? Right. I'm going to be three years older, whether I do it or not. So I, I did it. And I just really have enjoyed the complexity. I was, back around 2000, I think I started um, teaching at UCLA because they don't have a journalism program, no, which is in right. the UC system, which is really strange. And we knew somebody and she asked me to teach a course in photojournalism so they could be on the newspaper. So I found that I fell in love with it. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's have a quick break for our sponsor before our conversation with Don Barletti. Don, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome, Matt. I'm happy to do this. I, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm, I'm inviting you back because there's no way we get through your life, your career, without doing like part two, part three, part four. <laughs> We've already done well, though, because I made it 60 miles on the freaking freeway. That's right. You made it up the five. Yeah. How many times you made that trip? Oh, God, I don't even know. You know what the great thing about working for the LA Times was it was their car, their money, their time, their insurance, their car washes, oil changes, their time. <laughs> you and missed I that? got paid. No, not anymore. <laughs> I don't. No, I, I don't think I could take it. Uh, what was the last car the LA Times had you driving in? Was it like a Ford Taurus or something? That was a Ford Fusion. Oh, wow. It was actually, my, it was like a, in my opinion, in my life, a luxury car. Yeah. Oh, it was a cruiser. I'd just put on talk radio and, you know, just drive along. Do your thing. Yeah. Just when everything changed and it looked familiar, I'd get out and then I'd be at my assignment. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me, have you always been a, a San Diego Guy? Well, I've lived in the same house on Berkeley Way for 60 years. Wow. A house my father and I bought from a, um, uh, a bankrupt carpenter when I was 13, and then we finished the house. Are you, wow. I tiled the bathroom when I was 13 years old. Jeez. We still had dial-up telephones. Um, my dad drove a VW Beetle. We brought all the tile home in the back seat. And, and do you know, Matt, that bathroom is still 
functional. Really? Yeah. Is it was it a small neighborhood at that time? No, my dad said we're not buying a house, we're buying the location. And I'm on an acre. What? Now it's completely landscaped. It's like a park. Um, so he bought he bought to to put us in the rolling hills out way out in the country. Which, a smart move. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, the house was small, but now it's been expanded, and it's, it's all I need. Right. That's it. Yeah. Do Do you like the location now? As you know, an adult. I st- at thirteen, was it just like you were in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, in the third. I didn't care where I ever was. You know, my mom hated it so bad <laughs> because there was no bus service. The roads were dirt. Uh, she really? Didn't, she didn't drive. Uh, so she divorced my dad and no, took I hope off. not just for the dirt road. Nah, there was, there <laughs> Some was, other stuff. There was trouble for the past five years. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. I was just celebrating when they have split up. Oh. <laughs> Sorry to say yeah. that. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing, but some good lessons. Yeah. Well, that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, when your dad was a Marine, right? right? Mm-hmm. And then you decide at some point, I'm going to join the Army during the Vietnam War. During my research, I saw that and my heart just like stopped. I can't believe that. Yeah. It um, it was coincidental. In 1968, you know, the Tet Offensive took place and uh, I got my draft notice to go for a physical up in L.A. And I, of course, I passed it. And my dad said, you know... The next letter you're going to get from the uh, Selective Service Board is you're going to report for duty. So I suggest that you go down to an Army recruiter, not a Marine Corps one because they'll put you right in the war. Right. Go down to the Army recruiter and ask for a job that that we should talk it over, something you could do when you get out of the Army. And he knew that being the, the being on the inside. He kind yeah. of knew that. Yeah, because he, uh, he trained snipers in World War II, and he knew what the war was, how, how terrible and tragic it was going. Right. Yeah. And how useless combat actually is. Right. So, uh, yeah. So I, I joined up to do something he thought, my dad thought, I could do, I could work for the telephone company when I, I got out of the Army. Right. Looking for the career afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. But. It sucked. <laughs> <laughs> they were going to put me on a mountaintop in a cube tainer, in a, in a shipping container, and I was going to be like uh, a, uh, a radio operator pushing, putting plugs in buttons, uh-huh. connecting. This is before satellites, before microwave right. communications. Yeah. Everything was a hard wire. So I said, no, nah, you know what? I don't want to do that. Uh, plus, the uh, year of training I'd already had was with some non-commissioned officers that I thought to myself, if I go to Vietnam and knuckleheads like this are on the front lines with me, they're going to get me killed. You won't come back. They're idiots. Yeah. So yeah. I went to the commanding officer and said, I'd uh, like to volunteer for officer candidate school. Wow. Yeah. How did that go? Well, he said, uh, we don't need any more engineers. We don't need any more artillerymen. The only thing open is uh, infantry. Oh. So I said, yeah, I'll take it. Because, Matt, I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to make the rules. I wanted to give the the orders. Because, right. Because I felt confident that I could do that. And I qualified to, uh, uh, to go. And, and I went off for a year of training at Fort Benning, Georgia. As a very introverted, squirrely little guy, and I came out buffed up and super confident. I mean, they threw us down uh, waterfalls on rappelling. They put us through the jungle in Panama. They made us march and scream and yell and make our bed really well. So, yeah, I was a changed guy. How much weight did you put on? 
uh, you know, I still only weighed about 135. But you just got like bigger. Like a bench press 150. Right. You were bulked up. Yeah, I was. You felt big. Yeah. I could run 10 miles in combat boots. Nothing stopped me. Wow. Yeah. So it was good. So I was, uh, I was well prepared to go to the war physically. Mentally, right. it was scary. That's, it was scary for everybody. Right. Oh, Jesus. I can't believe a parent would let their son go to a war. Right. And we didn't realize what we do now, how, how phony it was, how, what a big shining lie that war was. Yeah. And now I'm so bitterly opposed to uh, government uh, interference in military operations that I, I can't tell you. I mean, my friends, my military friends have accused me of being, uh, you know, a communist. But I realize now the Vietnam War was all about money. It was about money for Sealand vans, about money for General Motors making uh, armaments, for Colt 45 making guns, bomb makers, communications. And all we had to do was blow it up, and they made millions. Right, make more. That's it. That's it. There was no objective. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, and I was in first lieutenant infantry. That's amazing. There was enough. There was enough dumbness in that war. I I calculated that my unit, my company, operated about forty percent efficiency. Forty percent. Jesus. That's it. Everything else was waste. You know, if a radio didn't work, we'd throw it in the Quantry River. If a truck didn't work, we tumbled it into a uh, bomb crater. And get another one. Said, fuck it. Yeah. Just yeah. Just like that. Oh. And I happened to be assigned to a trucking company where we hauled jet fuel and ammunition up to Quezon, which was a plateau right on the uh, North Vietnam border. And I'm telling you, the truck drivers were all draftees, and it was hard to get along with them. Yeah. Hard. It was hard to— Were they bitter? No, they were just—they were just unaware. Okay. Yeah, and happy to have a job because they probably couldn't get a job. Outside the military. Right. So they were working and using cocaine and smoking dope and drinking. And we had the potheads and the juicers. So it's hard to fight a war when, you know, uh, 60% of it is uh, personnel breakdown. Right. Yeah, that was the war where drugs really became a problem. Yeah, and racism was raging. Right. Oh, God, the blacks against the whites. The uh, I th it was a shame. It was embarrassing. Right. But somehow, during this hellish time, you find a camera. Yeah. Why and how? Well, I, uh, the last class I ever took at Palomar, uh, Palomar Junior College in San Marcos was uh, Photo 101. Took it during the summer as an elective. Okay. I wanted to be an artist of some sort. But uh, and that photog photography just hit me like a big soft boot in the ass. I said, this is it. This is, I can be subjective and objective, and I can actually physically do it. So uh, when I got to Vietnam, I, was, I went right to the PX, and I bought two Nikon cameras, a Nikromat and a Nikon F, FTN, 24-millimeter lens and one with a 50 that it came with. Right. And then you started yeah. – did you start taking photos there? Yeah, my job was in photography. Right. But so let me tell you, I used photography as an affirmation of life. Okay. Because – you know, the, the war was so unpredictable. Ambushes were came right out of the blue. Sickness and fear were unexpected, unpredictable. So I took pictures of villagers and clouds and flowers and the mountains and the fog and the mist and the rivers on Kodachrome 25 slides. And I would send it off to Hawaii to the Kodak Processing Lab. Wow. 
but I had them send it back to my unit in Vietnam, to the base camp. So I would hold those up to the, to the light and say, yeah, fuck, I'm not really in hell. I'm in, I'm on Mother Earth. Right. Was it therapeutic for you? Yes, it was. It absolutely was. It made me realize that, okay, I, uh, I can live. I've got given myself a little bit of self-pride. Because photography, like nothing else that I've ever known, gives you a sense of self-esteem. Right. Yeah. Because you're looking through the camera. You're deciding. Everything else doesn't matter. You make all the decisions. How, uh, how were like a villager, uh, how did they take to you taking photos? Yeah, it wasn't. There were, there were certain uh, cultural mores that I had to learn. For example, in the Citadel of Way that had long been blown to smithereens during the Tet Offensive. I got there two years later. Um, there were families there, but you, they, you could not take a picture of three people in the same picture. Interesting. That, that was a mystery that uh, I can't repeat what the reasoning is, but if there were, I remember I encountered a, a mother, father, and a child, and I said, oh, how beautiful. And, you know, through my translator, my driver uh, explained, and, and they would not allow that. They wouldn't allow it. No way. They put the child to the side and they say, okay, now you can take us two, but not three people. Would you go out in your fatigues or would you kind of be in like a dress, no, just I, casual? No, there were no civilian clothes allowed. So you were always in fatigue taking these a, pictures. Yeah. And I didn't make a lot of it. I didn't do a lot of that um, because, uh, you know, I was mostly, mostly working. Right. I, I couldn't just stop my convoy on the right. side of the road. But I shot a few pictures of people, you know, either waving or working in the rice paddies. Yeah. That's, wow. That's what I did. And that, and that was enough. And then on our practice firing range, little kids would come up and pick up the brass, the brass bullet casings, and they would sell them or use <laughs> them. And so they were they were funny. Uh, they, were, they were willing portrait subjects. That's the, probably the best therapeutic you can get. Oh, being there. Yeah. I, a I, release I, of, some si of some kind. It was that. It was that, yeah. An escape from the horror. Did it feel like it keep you a little, little, in, little sane? Did yeah. it help you? Well, it had to, yeah. Because when, uh, you know, we ran through a convo uh, uh, an ambush, I mean, it was, it was chaos. I wasn't taking pictures. Right, no, no, no. But when those photos came back from Hawaii, for you, was that opening up a little bit of, like, life? Like, you got to see these beautiful colors? Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would open up the little yellow carton. It had this little slip case. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you'd open up the hinge top. And I'd, I'd, I'd hold them up to the light. And, you know, I wouldn't just do it once. I would mark where I was and the date on every slide frame. Right. And on the box, I still have those. You still have those? Yeah. And Kodakum 25 and 64 doesn't, didn't fade. No, no, no. That stuff was bulletproof. It was, oh, it was beautiful well stuff. Made. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, your black and white stuff, if you didn't process it right now, bad fixer stuff doesn't make it 10 days. Yeah, yeah. So the war ends, you come home, what's your plan? Well, I, uh, I wanted to apply for unemployment because okay. I was legitimately unemployed. Right. But the Oceanside Office of the Unemployment Agency said, well, uh, every two weeks you have to come back with a list of three places where you, apply, <laughs> you applied for a job. Right. The old words you apply. So, well, I first I started at the bowling alley, and then I went to the paint, paint uh, warehouse, and then I went to the Vista Press because they were all next to each other. So 
I went to the Vista Press and introduced myself to uh, uh, the editor, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, yeah, well, you went to Palomar College, okay. Well, he called my old photo instructor, Justice Aaron. Really? Yeah, and then he called me a few uh, few days later said, hey, Don, you know, I hear you're a really good photographer. We could use somebody. You, do you want to try out? Do you want to, you interested? And I was kind of interested, but not really, because my wife and I had made plans to go to Europe and, and spend a year right. just to decompress and be back together again. So I said, yeah, okay, what the hell, I'll give it a try. And I freaking loved it. So when you signed up or applied for that job, did you apply as photographer or any job they had over? No, photographer. Okay. Yeah, because my only training was what? that one class at Palomar, <laughs> which I was, you know, supremely qualified. You think if you had taken maybe a whole year. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I had to start out, and uh, they made me use two and a quarter reflex cameras. Yeah, well, Okay. Yeah. So I said, I said to the editor, and his name escapes me, um, uh, but I've got these 35 millimeter Nikons, a really good camera. Nah, too small, too small. They, they won't get a good picture, won't reproduce well. So unbeknownst to him, I would use it sometimes. Right. And just bring him the prints, and he couldn't tell. No, he couldn't. <laughs> he was probably old school. Yeah. Oh, right. Jesus. I think he started From, the paper. Right. Speed graphic days, gets oh, yeah. into the 30, you know. Two and a quarter, and then uh, that 35 is a toy camera. Get that away from me. Yeah. So I could do fucking anything I wanted. And I started my own Sunday double truck called Point of View. Yeah, now I saw that. You just started that. Just I started, yeah. I said, you know, I'm not getting enough pictures in the paper here. You know, I'd have the front page, I have the sports page, you know, the society page, uh, you know, every advertising. I mean, hundreds of pictures right. a week. But that wasn't enough. But that wasn't what you wanted. Yeah, yeah. All right, so there was a hunger already starting. It was, I was addicted. And the only drug that would satisfy me was publication. More clicks, just yeah. shooting away. Were you the only photographer? Yeah. So they just abused you. <laughs> Don, go here, Don, go there. After three years, I was there three years, I said, you know what? They, they called me up on Thanksgiving Day and said, hey, there's a meet your merchant uh, guy down at the car agency that you couldn't get yesterday on, on Wednesday. Can you run down there? I said, no, my family's here. So we really need that. And then on Monday morning, Joe Boschetti uh, invited me into his office and said, Don, um, you know, you've been kind of a pain in the ass to us for a couple of years. So, uh, you know, we're going to give you long enough to find yourself another job or two weeks. I said, okay, two weeks, that's good, because I, f- I have two more stories I want to get in the paper. <laughs> Then you can shove it. Yeah, it's all yours. No, I never said that, but right. I, but I, uh, I took my leave, and I was afraid because I had just had a newborn, second newborn baby. Yeah, I was. Wow. But I, I'd been a good saver, and I worked for a year freelance doing weddings, bar mitzvahs, circumcisions, anything, uh, portraits, anything. Right. When <laughs> phone book yeah. covers. Yeah. Phone a kinsinetta and a you know bar mitzvah at the same time doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I do it all. <laughs> Now, in those three years, does the migrant process that you're starting to becomes your long-term, I guess, photo essay of your career, like, does it start there in those three years? It started, but I didn't know it started. There was an orphanage uh, in Takade that the Women's Club of Vista used to visit once a month, and they would bring food and clothing. Okay. And they would play with the children, and I was invited along asking if I might want to do a little story on it. 
And I went there and I was, was right across the border, these beautiful little children. I photographed them at playing, talking, eating. Um, and we, I laid out a, a double truck plus the front page. And about three months later, the director of the orphanage called and, and told the editor, got the editor on the phone, said, I just want to tell you that every child that Don Bartletty photographed and put in the paper has been adopted. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, my God. It's still an emotional crescendo for me because it was right then and there that I realized the power of photojournalism. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if you're Catholic, but that could have gotten you close to Satanhood. I mean, good Lord. How many children did you photograph? Uh, there was about 13. But they're out of a population of maybe 50 in right. the orphanage. But, but 13, that is touching. Oh, and they were the most beautiful little creatures I ever they, I mean, the darker making these prints, and they're beautiful faces, you know, jump roping or just looking cute. And these are all like four to nine-year-old kids. Right, little children. Yeah. In that three-year period at Vista, did you see yourself growing and understanding composition, the understanding of black and white processing? Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was all black and white. Color wasn't invented no, yet. Not for that paper, So no. I saw only in tones and patterns. I didn't see in colors. You know, red okay. was black. Blue was right. dark gray. You know, gray was gray. And uh, But I did other stories about shit that I either loved or hated. And I hated large signs that were in downtown Vista. So I did, you know, a story on that. I had, and they put up a five-story building and I titled it Beauty and the Beast. I started before, <laughs> I knew it was gonna happen. I started when there was a foundation and five pictures of the same perspective that blocked the whole view of the beautiful mountains of, in Eastern Vista, Beauty and the Beast. Well, from the sign story, they passed an ordinance. Okay, now Vista is only going to have monument signs. They can't be a sign on a big high pole. They'll have to be no higher than five feet high. And from the uh, uh, the Beauty and the Beast story, they passed an ordinance, no, no building over 35 feet. Wow. So I got people's attention. Yeah. Isn't that great? You're either getting <laughs> orphanages, you know, taken care of, or you're getting city policy changed. And this is the first three years of journalism. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was I, I couldn't stop. I mean, that must have been a, a pretty much a high for you yeah, to understand, like, your, your power behind that camera is unbelievable. Yeah. Most times I was just trying to take pretty pictures and get people's compliments. Because Justice Aaron at Palomar College said, you know what you want to do? And it wasn't a journalism class, photojournalism. Just it, it was right? just trying to learn how to get shit in focus. Right. He said, make pictures that people like. So, okay. You know, beautiful things get people's attention. Beautiful children, even ugly signs. Right. Did you have an artist background or where did your eye develop at all? Like, is that such a, an amazing, like, from one class to just... Boom, make that jump, seeing things in Vietnam, now seeing things in Vista. I mean, that's a quick understanding of photography in three years. Well, I was, I declared myself an art major at this uh, junior college because I had nothing else in mind. My dad wanted me to be a dentist because he knew I was good with my hands and maybe <laughs> I could get rich, unlike him. But anyway, you know, art, I, I did sculpture, I did painting, watercolor, uh, but nothing. Nothing really hit. But I understood 
perspective and from uh, uh, art history, learning from the masters. But I was not out to copy any any photographer's style. Okay. I, uh, I just found my own eye. Were there other photographers in the area you would see, maybe banter with? No, there was. There was a guy at the Blade Tribune, the Oceanside newspaper, Bill Carmen. Oh, my God. We subscribed to that paper. And he was a huge inspiration. He must be 95 now, but he, uh, he had a beautiful eye, and he would do gorgeous photos. I said, someday I'd like to do that. Right. He had his name under every photo, and it was, it was just pictures that were informational and, right. and beautiful. I don't want to get too far off topic, but you, well, you and I understand this is like, I think this is what's lost right now in journalism, where that little newspapers that used to be all over the country yeah. are getting swallowed up, disappearing every year. Right, right. There were great little photographers like that gentleman, yourself and Vista, mm -hmm. who were starting out and would stay at that paper for 30, 40, 50 years. He was years. there his whole career. Right. And they were making unbelievable photos. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you were the one guy in Maui or someone in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, mm -hmm. or Billings, Montana. Right. That little, those little tiny community papers, if there was a photographer that were worth his grain and salt, he could do whatever he wanted. And that you were in that time. And I did that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you find a job, you leave this place, where do you go? Uh, leave uh, the Vista Press. Vista. Yeah, well, I didn't want to freelance for a year, and then... Um, now, did you feel confident doing that? Well, I was incredibly motivated because I had a family with two children. Okay. But I was so desperate. This sounds irresponsible. I didn't have enough money to buy auto or medical insurance, so I went for a year without it. Right. Yeah, but I was really careful. Yeah. So uh, like millions of people that still do that now. I know. <laughs> right. I mean. I know. That, that's right. Yeah, I, I can't justify it now except to say it. It made a. It makes a great story, huh? Yeah. Yeah. But I, uh, I was no hero. Thank God nothing happened. Right. Thank God nothing happened. So anyway, then, I, then a rumor was circulating that the one of two photographers at the Blade Tribune besides Bill Carmen, in fact, Bill called me, and he said, uh, one of our other photographer got a drunk driving ticket. Uh, I've seen your work at the Vista Press. Do you want to come over and see if you want a job here? <laughs> I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. It was great. So I could break the reins of my little small town of Vista, and now I could. My beat was expanding. Right, I could go to the ocean. I could go as far as, south as Del Mar, as far north as Camp Pendleton. That was great. Wow, that, I mean that's expansion for you. Yeah, and you got a partner. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. We got along great. You know, my my uh, my hero, you know, my mentor, was now my uh, chief photographer. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Did migration at all peak up during that year you were there, or? No, it actually had not had not begun yet. Okay. No. So that was, well, that was, let's see, 1978, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Blade Tribune. Yeah, so you were there for a year. Yeah. And then you go and you head to this adolescent newspaper, the Tribune? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got a call from a guy named Charlie Sick. They called him Seasick, I learned. Later. Charlie Sick. Yeah, he was the director of photography. <laughs> he had already man. been there 40 years. <laughs> 40 when, years? When he called me, uh, he said, Don, we got, it. we got an opening here. Larry Armstrong is leaving to go to the LA Times. Um, you want to you wanna try out? Bring me a portfolio. Yeah. 
So, uh, and I had already generated a really great portfolio with all these tear sheets, they called them. That's, mm-hmm. you know, the whole uh, uh, printed newsprint sheet. And I had a whole bunch of prints that I, could, I made in my darkroom. Right. Yeah. The, uh, that's the advantage, though, of being the guy in a little paper like that. You have a chance of covering everything. Yeah. From the football game to a mayor to a car accident. Like, you, there's no excuse not to have an image. Yeah. You've got it all. But this was the order of things in those years. Now, newspapers go to universities that have top-notch photojournalism programs. Right. right. And they're ba- everything is based on that portfolio, their internships, and their freelance work, and their website. In the old days, you just kind of moved up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Like, like baseball, minor leagues. Yeah. Some good friends of mine took my job at the Vista Press when I left the Blade Tribune. Another good friend took that one. And then on to the— So U- now you're U- like U- a AAA. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're sitting in AAA right now, the Tribune. Yeah. And I was so happy. I thought, I'm going to be making so much money, I'll be able to move to La Jolla and be really close to where the office is. <laughs> where, where was the office at the time? Was it, it was down in an area called Mission Valley, which is okay. Highway 8 and uh, Highway 5, okay. more or less. So that's a good drive for you then. Yeah, it was 40 miles. Okay. So I was just beginning my second career, and that's commuting. <laughs> Lord, did I not know what I was in for. But it didn't matter because, you know, I told you how Oceanside expanded my beat. Wow. Now I had the whole county. I had from the Mexican border to Orange County all the way to to the desert. Yeah, you got mountains, desert, glorious ocean. Right. And I exploited it. I was inevitably late for work two or three times a, uh, a morning because I saw stuff that I loved. And I'd shoot what we called enterprise art or wild art. Mm-hmm. It became front page pictures all the time. You know, and then after work, she'd, I'd, I'd get distracted and I'd be late getting home. I couldn't stop. Matt, I tell you, it was, it was a glorious addiction. You were just a hummingbird in a garden, just oh. going everywhere. Ah, and the old fuckers at the, at the paper, they hated me. Oh, oh yeah, God. that's typical. Because I was like overshadowing them. Right. Slow down. Don't shoot everything. Yeah. yeah. You were just this young punk running around being crazy. And ironically, I didn't experience it exactly that way, but I recognized it when I came time for me to retire from the paper and then the new eyes were coming. Mm-hmm. I wasn't jealous in any way, but I recognized their enthusiasm you saw and their it. zeal and their new way of seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, it's, it always evolves like that. Yeah, it does. So that time of the Tribune? Now, what, what's that period like for seven years? Well, I was actually covering the border. That was my first introduction to uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, there was a new border uh, organization called the, the Border Area Enforcement to try to cut down on murders, rapes, robberies, and uh, assaults on migrants. Right, because this is late 70s, yeah. and it's crazy down there. Crazy nuts. And this was the San Diego Police Department was trying to somehow come up with a plan to to stop the, the murders and, and the violence on the U.S. side of the border. Just right. 10 feet inside the fence is California. Right. And San Diego was responsible for that. But ironically, simultaneously, the Mexican government formed a group called Grupo Beta, um, which was also a companion un- um, ununiformed, undercover organization trying to protect the migrants from the gangsters in okay. Tijuana. So that became huge news. And then uh, migrant enforcement became a little more severe. Migrant 
routes to the north changed. So all of these things that were on my menu, you know, the, the violence, putting up new fences, changing uh, paths of migration, you know, what, I, then I began to understand what was pushing people out of Mexico and what was drawing them in. Right. Was that shocking for you, seeing that for the first time? I mean, that's got to be unbelievable. It was a mind blower. I, I can distinctly remember saying to myself, standing on an area called the soccer field, which is about 15 miles, maybe five miles inland from the Pacific Ocean, okay. an area near Colonia Libertad on the east side of uh, Highway 5, where most people were crossing. Um, there was a priest that said mass there, and there were hundreds, legions of people that would mass against the fence, which was essentially barbed wire smashed into the ground with hundreds of feet going north. It was, it was unenforceable. The Border Patrol gave up. Right, it was just wild. It was a no man's land. Jeez. They would wait on the ridge line a mile away. So anyway, I'm standing there among these hundreds and hundreds of people saying, how in the hell did this happen? What is happening? This is historic. I said, I know 25 years from now, people are going to look back and say, how the fuck did this happen? And with my photographs, they're going to have an answer. This is how it happened. So I'm not, I'm not trying to lobby one way or another for open borders, right, closed yeah. borders, you know, enforcement or lack of it, uh, amnesty or lack of amnesty. I'm just saying... This is how it took place. So while America was sleeping, this is how this gigantic ethnic uh, shift uh, took place. Now, that's Carter administration. So was it just something not on their radar? It just kind of happened very fast. California was overwhelmed and San Diego County was overwhelmed. And nobody really had a legit answer on how to handle this. Yeah, I'm not sure the politics of it uh, was more... Uh, interested in the uh, I hate to say and I don't say this lightly the theater right the theater because it was it absolutely was right yeah every day I would stand somewhere and I would observe and I would wonder wow you couldn't make this up this is epic in nature because there were so many people motivated going north through the river climbing the fences up against the levee going through the chaparral Helicopters, border patrolmen racing their Broncos. I think, uh, I think people get a sense like it happens at Tijuana, and they have no idea it happens 400 miles down the border in the middle of nowhere. It's all over the place. Yeah, well, it did migrate. But I tell you, during the, uh, the period of, oh, the early 90s up to uh, the, the early 2000s, San Diego was the portal through which more undocumented immigrants passed then across any political boundary on earth. Right. The Border Patrol statistics revealed that there were as many as a million people that had crossed based on apprehensions and guesstimations between the Pacific Ocean and Otay Mountain. Jesus. That's about a 15-mile period. Millions. Millions a year. Just doing whatever they can. Now, some of those were caught, deported, right. and they would come back the same day. So, sure. Th yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up in La Habra, and I had friends who, you know, in the, in the barrio where their family members were getting caught three or four times and would just try to come again, come again, missed, get caught, drew it again. It was just back and forth, just a game. Yeah. Constantly to get here. It was. How, I mean, how, what was the light switch for you to say, okay, I'm taking this 
and I'm not going to make it a torture mantle, but I'm going to document it because it's just so big. I mean, what was the switch? Was it a scene, a moment, something that you know caught your eye in a photo? What was that? Well, uh, Sebastian Rotella, a, a esteemed reporter uh, that I worked with a lot. We didn't work together. I preferred to be alone. But he was writing about, okay, they're, they're going to put up new stadium lights now to try to illuminate this um, steel fence made <laughs> from uh, surplus landing mats that I used in Vietnam. They were We'd put them down on the wet jungle floor, and we could land helicopters and airplanes and store ammunition on them. So they were surplused and welded together to become a 10-foot fence. So the Border Patrol was, you know, it really wasn't stopping anybody because you could climb it like a ladder. Right. There, there were ripples in it. You could get a foothold and a toehold and a handhold. Uh, so they put up stadium lights on portable uh, trailers with generators. So that was, that was an assignment. And I found my way around onto the Mexican side of the border. And I found thousands of people massed in the Tijuana River levee. And when certain signals were given by coyotes who were at the top of the fence, it would be a whistle or a, or a bang on the fence, and it would thunder like uh, you know, like like steel. And people would, like lemmings, they would climb up the fence. And I say this with no disrespect, but there were like ants crawling up the top and then leaping down the other side, leaping yeah. down, leaping down. I said, this is. What, what's going on? I mean, there's there's more to this. That is so amazing. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I think it was the 90s when they had that big Tijuana rush. There was like a day where just thousands of people overran the border. and they were Yeah, just they would like, come through the car lanes. Yeah, and they were just the spilling through, and it was crazy, and it was like that. Just ants just flying yeah, yeah, through Yeah, that was one I missed. Oh, and I, I, you know, I wish I would have had it. Well, how, yeah. do you, how do you know? Right? Yeah, I like, know. it's just well, random. Everybody gets together and takes one guy like was it like that that day for you like you see one guy then four then 10 then 20 and then it's just every man for himself just goes over the fence that's how it happened and one of my most treasured pictures i titled too hungry to knock i'm on the u.s side standing next to one of these big searchlights aimed at the the bare steel fence and I'd been there a couple of hours, and I would go up to the fence. A Border Patrol became accustomed to me. I told them what I was doing. They didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. And I'd look through the little cracks or the little holes, and it was the usual questions. These guys would tell me, hey, uh, you know, we're trying to get a job. We, well, there's no work here. We're trying to find our parents. Um, and they would ask me how much my camera's worth over and over and over again. Yeah, so uh, I had the camera on a tripod, and I... I had walked away to talk to a border patrolman about something. I said, I wanted to know when the shift was going to change, so I'd have heads up, because that's when migrants would come back. So I returned to my tripod, and the camera was gone. <laughs> Somebody had managed to reach through a hole, a little crack, a seam in that steel fence, and unscrewed my camera, and it was gone. Now, I had already been there for two hours bantering with these guys. Some guys would climb the top, and I knew they were the smugglers. I knew I knew the locals from the migrants. Right. So I looked through there and said, hey, what, what are you doing? Don't you know me? You know what I'm doing. Why do you do that? We want that camera. Oh, sir, we don't know who took it. We don't have any idea. I said, I tell you what, just give me the film. You keep the camera because I'd already made some really good pictures. Right. Keep, keep the camera. I says, oh, well, we don't know who has it. I says, oh, listen, I'll buy it from you. I'll buy it from you. How much do you want? I said, uh, I don't know. 
we don't know if we can find it. Well, he came back and said, okay, sir, $20. We have the camera. I says, okay, 20 bucks it is. I was tempted to go, I'll give you 10. <laughs> and they would have, they would have understood. Sure. I probably could have gotten back yeah. to 15. So, you know. bartering for your film. Through the hall comes the camera. And I was tempted to snatch it and not pay. Right. But, you know, I'm not that kind of person. I'd made a deal, legitimate deal with these illegitimate thieves. But nevertheless. Someone has to be the white knight, right? It was an hour after that that I made too hungry to knock. I had stepped back away from the fence, wasn't going to let this happen again. And um, I knew when, by that time when the Border Patrol was going to change shifts. And that's when the smugglers went to the top and they would give a whistle and it was like thunder. It was like cacophonous. Dozens of hands and feet and knees and elbows banging against as they climbed the Mexican side and they would get to the top and they would jump down. They would jump down, just free fall down. Oh, so I get a sequence of five pictures and then the one that I like are two guys are in, in midair where their hand had just left the top of the fence and their feet hadn't yet hit the ground. So did you learn something from that about now this, because it becomes something you do for over 30 years, as much as they're your subject, you do have to be aware that you're dealing with people that are starving. Yeah. They'll do whatever. If they don't mean to hurt you, but they will because they're at such a low point in their life, they'll do anything. I know. But the real challenge of my occupation and the ethics of photojournalism made my job and that subject even more painful. Right. Oh. I could have changed lives with a $5 bill. Yeah. Or a chicken sandwich or uh yeah a jacket uh, where anything yeah but i yeah because you walk in that fine balance yeah i had to adhere to it yep. so you would believe every picture right because once the rumor gets out that you're you know fox newsing it or or mockumentering your job yeah i mean you're you're done you, yeah you'll never be believed no no and it'll, it'll, it'll be with you forever if it's just a rumor from 79 yeah yeah yeah, rumors never go away. No. No, they, it will mark you for the rest of your career. Right. And uh, I know people who sure. have, have been marked like yeah. that. So let's do a little technical thing. How are you shooting that black and white back then, right? Because that film's not great. What are you using, Tri-X 400, if you can remember? Yeah, it was. Uh, there was a new film called T-Max that replaced Tri-X, okay. which was a finer grain, the same uh, sensitivity. Okay. And we could push it to 1,200 with okay. the AccuFine, I think, right. or something. Yeah, but it was a horrible challenge. Oh, my God. I, you know, when I was filing dozens of years of negatives, I was looking at them all as I put them in archival sleeves. Mm -hmm. So many images are blasted out. The, the, the highlights are gone. Right. Or it's underexposed. Because, you know, it's only that little manual camera. And, you know, later on it became aperture priority uh, uh, option, but I never used it. Right. So, yeah, and, and the film got better. And digital got better. The lenses got better. That helps you. But then... Yeah. I don't think, and I, we could sound like two old guys saying, how it was back then, but it was crazy. Those images you made, anybody made back then, you go, you look back at them now and go, well, it really wasn't sharp. No, that was tack sharp for 1979. Like yeah. that camera, that lens, that exposure, that's all I had, right? I've got to deal with the chemistry and the film. 
and their limitations. You know, my career evolved as I aged. As technology improved, I became uh, less acute uh, visually because I couldn't focus as well, but now we have autofocus. Right. Back then, the beauty of youth, the glory, the gift of youth, I was... My eyes were perfect. I didn't need glasses. I could focus uh, a wide-angle lens uh, at midnight in a black hole, right. and I could find it. You were an owl. I could find it. Yes. I even knew how far to turn the lens. You just because knew. how far I was. I, it was intuitive. It became my camera was a, as familiar as all the parts of my wife. Right. I knew where all the good things were, even in the middle of the dark. Right. And but it. it it's very true. I think I think it's lost on a lot of people on how that was a skill to know that camera. Yeah. And it had to be understood. It had to be mastered because there were there was very very little automation. So now you know, now that I, uh, you know, I have to wear glasses and I can't see anything uh, closer than like five feet away, uh, it's, it's a miracle. And wide-angle lenses on uh, digital cameras are almost fucking impossible to yeah. manual focus. Right. Oh, jeez. We went through a period there of all these digital lenses would back focus. Do you remember that? Yes. You would look like it was in focus, but it wasn't. Right. Yeah. Well, now that's all been figured out, and it's 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 a miracle. Well, one of the one of the things I think we forget is how good the viewfinder was back then, right? It was clean, clear glass. We didn't have all these lights and red oh, dots I and illuminating. Know. God, all that crap that's inside that viewfinder now. Right. The early digital ones, it was like looking through like Vaseline, like looking at Barbara Walters. It was <laughs> god awful. And then there was just one dot in the middle, and it was too bright. I mean, it was weird how it went from being able to see it dark and yeah. then how digital, you couldn't see a damn thing. Right, right. Now, it's so much better, but there was a period of time where it was just brutal. Boy, the old Nikon FTN, the old Nikon F2, F3, 4, 5, you'd look through there, and all you would see was a little needle out in the upper right That's it. that went up and down. That was it. You, you didn't know the shutter speed was outside the camera. So you could concentrate on that that, that cinematic, uh, uh, beautiful thing that you were trying to compose. Right, corner to corner. You saw it all. Yeah. It was beautiful. So you really undertook then. This became something you were going to stick with, this migrant moment in time. You were going to, it was your beat, and you were going to make it something. I felt it was important, even though it wasn't the only thing I did. Sure. I mean, there are so many things on the menu of a newspaper, you know, weather, sports, entertainment, so forth and so on. But, you know, in spite of the horror of wars and uh, civic disturbances, murders, political failings and successes, they're only temporary. There's one story that is forever, and that's migration for survival. Right. It will Never go away. Never. Ever. All over the world, someone's always moving to get somewhere else. All over the world. So I wanted to be able to, uh, um, to document enough of that so people would know, know how it happened. Right. Did you ever get to Central America or South America? Oh, because yeah. that's where, like, it's funny. Everybody thinks it's Mexico, but it's coming from all over. Yeah, it's... I had I had assignments deep in, in Bolivia, uh, Brazil, Argentina... And I swear, I'd be walking around outside of my assignment, and people would come up to me and said, hey, do you, do you know how I can get to the United States? It's pervasive. Right. Especially in these little jungle encampments or, and small pueblos, isolated pueblos where people are uh, just struggling 
struggling to live. Tell the process. How was that like getting a story started back then in the in the seventies and the eighties at that time? Like going to either Central America or going to uh, South America. What was the process? Well, the two major newspapers I worked for, the San Diego Union, and especially the L.A. Times, they were like research institutions. They had brilliant reporters who had beats, and they they knew. Everybody, they had lists of contacts and resources and sources, so they knew it. They knew it like I could never learn it. So I relied on reporters to do this for me, introduce me to the subject, get me interested in it, and to open the door and get me in. But then, once I learned about it, I learned all the vagaries of, uh, could be a migration story, it could be you know, anything. Once I learned, what the hell was going on? Then I insisted on working alone. Really? You preferred to be alone? Yeah. Because a reporter is, you know, you know, by rights, trying to get quotes, mm-hmm. uh, trying to, to figure out the uh, supporting elements from uh, official sources and so forth. And to drag my ass along on that, God, I'm not going to shoot a guy, a, a Border Patrol chief at his desk. That doesn't mean anything no, to me. No, that's not a story picture. Yeah. That's a waste of time. Yeah. So I would, I would always go out. And it was sometimes uh, turned down. I said, yeah, I had to do a daily and you have to get some something to right. go in the daily paper. Yeah. But if there were longer range features, uh, which became more possible for me at the LA Times because they were, they were a far different uh, uh, academic attitude there. Right. Way different. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about that. Then you get, at what point in 84 do you get called up, let's say, to the big leagues? Yeah, I was, I was with uh, Bob Greiser, who was the director of photography at the San Diego edition of the LA Times. And he was a sailor, sailing. He loved boats. And there was a, a ship being built, a replica of an old three-masted schooner. And I was at the San Diego Union. He was there for the LA Times. And we're both inside the hull of this beautiful ship photographing. And I'm chatting with him. I said, hey, Bob, boy, you know, if you, I'd sure like to work for the LA Times. I, geez, that'd be great, you know. What, what, why? What, what drove you? What gave you that? Because I, I wanted even a bigger beat. San Diego County was too restricting. I had done some stories out of the country for the Union Tribune in Central America. But, you know, I got back and here I was doing, you know, uh, society stuff, dog of the week, uh, uh, you know, the weather. Right. Padres game. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Something, anything. And really pushing the limits. And the Union Tribune didn't like that. They were a union shop. And if you were late or you took pictures with your own cameras or you took pictures uh, driving your own vehicle, they didn't like that. That was against the rules. Really? Or if I worked through lunch, they didn't like that either. Right. So we became arch enemies and you know I got fired right <laughs> but just in the nick of time just, Bob yeah, Greiser again, again. was there and said sure come on over let me see what you got so I spoke with Dale Featherling showed them both my um, he was the editor Dale was yeah and they liked it now people don't know there used to be an edition of the LA Times yeah. and in the valley right there, there used to be a valley edition of the uh-huh. LA Times yeah and then there was a there was multiple editions in the morning, right? There was the early edition and the after, later edition, not afternoon, but later. Yeah. So how was that being in San Diego in the L.A. Times? That was the pinnacle of photojournalism on the face of the earth. I was there shooting black and white film, a staff of five photographers and sometimes four freelancers. Every idea I had, Bob Greiser was, yeah, 
do it. I'd go out and explain it to the editor, shake his hand. They'd ask me, how much do you think it would cost? How much, how much time do you need? And they would, they would fund it. Some things were, most things were local. You know, and the border was local. Right. We owned the border. Right. Oh, my God. We just, and Pat McDonald, a reporter, and I, we ended up being like, you know, Mutt and Jeff together. We had that border nailed. We had so many sources that a laundry list developed of stories that we had to do. We just had to do. And pretty soon, you know, another photographer on our San Diego staff started getting really pissy and jealous. That, hey, you know, this guy came here. That used to be my beat. Bah, 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 bah. Well, you Bob said, well, you don't speak Spanish, and you're not coming up with any ideas, blah, 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 blah. Was the border a sexy beat? No, not sexy. It was important. It was okay. newsworthy. Well, that, yeah, it, it that's was, what I mean. It, was, it had some gravitas to it, yeah. Yeah, and it, it was ugly and difficult to do. Because, And I swear, I was in Tijuana probably once or twice a week. And, and you know, that's a, that's a hard scrabble town yes. to get through. And it's, it's not as dangerous, I don't think, as it is now. Uh, but in the 80s, yeah, you were— Yeah, it was a different kind of danger. And the danger there then was the local police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not the gangs. It was the police. Right. Yeah. Wow. So who was on staff with you back then? Uh, there was Bob Greiser, Vince Campanone, Barbara Martin, Dave Gatley, and me. Five okay. guys. Yeah. You guys just had a hell of a good time. We were kicking the Union Tribune's ass every day. Did you take that little uh, chip on your shoulder a little bit there? No, I, I really did. Yeah. I'll show you, son of a bitches. And actually, this made journalism in San Diego uh, soar to incredible uh, uh, legitimacy. Really? Because we were sort of competing with one another. Right. Sometimes we'd find ourselves on the same assignment, same news or heavy feature thing. Mm -hmm. We'd always try to outdo each other with respect right. and with you know, competitiveness. decorum. Sure. So I yeah. think LA, LA Times misses that right now. It doesn't have that. LA Daily News or that register to go head to head with them and keep them. I think newspapers need that. They absolutely, yeah, they do. Yeah. It keeps them competitive. It's tragic the way things have devolved. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's unbelievable that I'm not saying you were the reason why, but you got into a place that made two newspapers charge <laughs> and go head to head. Oh. Like I said, you know, my, new, my newspaper career has evolved uh, like, like a dream, like a script out of a movie, perfectly. Right. You know, both technologically, uh, philosophically, resource-wise. And then when it started all going to hell, I was ready to retire. <laughs> you knew when to pull the ejection cord. <laughs> Tried it every time. I'd already taken every picture that could possibly be taken. <laughs> I didn't need to keep going. What else is there? People are just copying me now. Yeah. <laughs> They're just doing what I did yeah. in black and white. <laughs> Dark. So... At that point, what are you thinking now, your first year or two at the Times? Are you just thinking, I can do whatever the F I want? Yeah, and they were... And they had your back. And they realized how enthusiastic and, without patting myself on the back, how, how really skilled I was and how different and, you can pat it. and efficient I was. Yeah. And it came without any effort at all. It just came. It just came like a gift from some somewhere. And they recognized that. And they would come to me with the big stories. Reporters would ask me to be, what I hate to say, their photographer. But right. uh, then they became my reporter. Right. So, well, if you're the tenacious guy who's hungry, going to go out and yeah. kill himself for the photo, that's what you want. So besides, you know, the, the daily or the weekly uh, uh, short-term project, 
there was this incredible thing that started happening right outside my door in Vista and Oceanside and Carlsbad and Del Mar and uh, migrant camps uh, be, uh, started being established. And these were these started happening when the peso was devalued in right. Mexico in the late 80s, early 90s. Thousands of men and young teenagers came north searching for work in the flower fields, tomato sure. fields, so forth. And that became... There was no nobody could afford rent. You couldn't afford to rent no, a house in upper middle class San Diego. So these embryonic barrios were established in the, in the valleys when there still was space in between uh, suburbia, mm-hmm. and in the chaparral deep in these canyons, they would build little sh- shacks, cantons, and uh, I got a line on a story from the fire department in. Encinitas complaining that there was a restaurant there where they were had a fire and they were cooking chicken and it was in the chaparral. I mean, how dangerous oh, could that have goodness. been? Could have lit the whole community on fire. So I went there to do a story and um, Doña Lupe had a little restaurant set up called uh, Restaurante Los Pollos or the chicken restaurant. And Los Pollos was a derogatory uh, phrase that the Border Patrol used for migrants. They called them chickens because chickens. they were always running. Yeah, but she had a little hand-painted sign and uh, a little picnic table made out of scrap wood. And every day she'd go to the Vons with her bicycle and, and buy meat and beans and, and cook damn good meals. And I'm going, can you believe that? But it was even better than that because there were camps all over San, North San Diego County. They were in McGonagall Canyon and Del Mar, five miles inland from million-dollar, two-million-dollar homes, sometimes down in the valley below these mansions. Right. And migrants found work in um, car washes, uh, motels, uh, uh, supermarkets, in restaurants. And they would retreat back into these little canyon camps. So I said, wow, this is a subculture that's um, unbelievable. Right. You never would have thought as a 13-year-old boy moving into that house at that time that within seconds out door out your door all of a sudden people have got camps living there yeah yeah they they hadn't established themselves uh when i was 13 no but but later on but yeah but imagine a 13 year old living this way right yeah this must have been just unbelievable so there was two conflicting things as i was photographing the um the the unseemly cruelty of living without electricity without toilets without sanitation or running water and surviving nevertheless and even establishing little barrios or uh, colonias within these camps one camp had 2,000 people by estimation uh, but there you know the, the Chilangos of Mexico City would live on, on the high dry ground the Guatemalans would have to live down where the mosquitoes were next to the creek interesting so that was an incredible discovery there was even a gay uh, contingent uh, that all the uh, uh, the mean guys from Guerrero would tease and, and, and fight right because that was a big no-no oh. in that community back then yeah it was I mean you get, people have to realize this is 2020 and it's yeah. a whole different than the 80s yeah and gay migrants oh my goodness that you know so the 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 magnetism the, the temptation of covering this was limitless not only was it this 
surprising infrastructure that was managed by the people who lived there without anybody in charge, but they managed. They managed to have soccer games. They managed to have quinceaneras. They managed, they managed to have uh, swap meets. Still having a life. Yeah, but there was another part of it, and that was the vitriolic hate of the surrounding community. Right. Yeah, they hated these people because... One guy I photographed uh, in his house said, yeah, you know, I just moved here from Michigan, and uh, I thought I got this bucolic view of this valley, and, you know, unlike where I came from in the city, I'm living out in the country, but now I realize I'm really not alone here. He said, because every night he'd see little wisps of smoke coming from up Through the out, canyon. Of, out of the canyon. Yeah. And then he became, uh, you know, he would call the Border Patrol. Right. And, so that was that was there that was the dichotomy that that it was uh, making itself known to me, and through the glory of journalism, I could make that known to everybody who didn't know about it. Right. And sometimes it was made known to people in the community who really really hated it, and they would use my photos as evidence. Sure. Yeah. This is not migration. This is an invasion. This is not, uh, you know, a little community of cute little people who are doing the best they can. This is trespassing. Right. So They're still breaking the law. One side, yeah. the other side is yeah. not opening with an open heart. So I had to be extremely careful. And I wasn't without opinion, but I kept it to myself because I understood both right. schools of thought. Mm -hmm. And I had to remain neutral so now, I could get the real story. You had already done the Caltrans photo by then? The uh, accidental kind of morphed into Caltrans photo? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was part of that – that was another story on the list that came, all these horrible – this carnage along the freeways. Right, because that was – I remember that being a yeah. big thing. Oh, it was, it was huge. And it's a story worth telling because it's, it, it, it's one of probably every photojournalist's dream that you can make a picture that makes a difference. Right. And we don't always know that they do and maybe, in fact, 99.9% they don't. But it's weird that I remember when it went up because I remember when it wasn't there. And when we would go to San Diego, how driving home, my dad was aware. And then, boom, there's a sign. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's that bad? Well, when Pat McDonald, my trusted reporter at the Times in San Diego, he came to me and he said, you know, we've got these statistics from Caltrans saying, you know, already this year there have been 165 people slaughtered on the freeway down a mile north of the U.S.-Mexico border and up near Camp Pendleton at that Border Patrol mm -hmm. checkpoint. And hundreds of others maimed and crippled. People, uh, you know, left for days in the median before they were discovered injured or dead. So, Don, let's see if we could do a story on that. Well, I didn't know where it was happening. There was no statistics except a mile from the border and a mile from the San Onofre checkpoint. So I had to go out, and it took me days and days. And my, uh, my photo director of photography who hired me, he, he was getting, you know, whispers in his ear from jealous other photographers on the staff said, hey, you've been letting this guy, he's been out three nights now, and he's got no pictures. I says, uh, you know, why can't, I, why can't I go out and spend three days on an assignment? You know, and I remember coming back one morning before I went out again, and in the photo assignment book was said, didn't get anything. Oh, boy. I was so, I was so, I mean, I was both angry and depressed. 
So I did go out again. I spent all night. And at the crack of dawn, I realized this is where it's happened. People are creeping up through the Tijuana River uh, bottom, coming up in between two uh, business park uh, buildings and climbing over a fence and then dashing across the freeway to the median. And the median became like a swap meet, like a free-for-all, where there were smugglers swinging deals about going to L.A. Mm -hmm. or going further north. Um, but until they got to the median, where there was only a, a concrete K-rail barrier, that's all there was, you know, there, there, there were deaths on each side. Jesus. So I remember uh, one morning, just barely, I had 400 speed film cranked up to 1200, a 300 millimeter 2.8 lens, uh, and, and I leaned, and I had seen people gathered, and they looked like they were at the starting line of a sprint, you know, probably right. 30 people. And I'm running and running and running, trying to get closer, close enough to get it to fill the frame, and I never did to the first person moved a guy with a sombrero. So I leaned against the K-rail, set the camera down, and just started, I hit the motor drive, bam, 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 bam. And that became the signature picture for that anchored our story on carnage on the freeways. Plus there were other pictures of this little, uh, you know, this little informal community of people swinging deals in the middle, fathers with children on their shoulders, kids being tugged across the freeway almost like the sign shows. Right. So Caltrans saw that article and, and their PR uh, flack called me up and said, Don, you know, we've got to, and I'll quote him, stop the slaughter on the freeway. We've, we were trying to figure out everything we can. We're going to put dots in the freeway. We're going to put up slow signs, you know, and they even hired me to take pictures of these bots dots. They were going to put little ripples right, yeah. in certain areas just to slow people down or alert them and then he said Don could you send us you know five six seven pictures uh, send us the ones that were in the paper and send any more that you think we could give to our staff artist because we want to create a sign a warning sign for drivers to tell them to slow down and based on probably five or six of my photos because I know he didn't go sit night after night next to the freeway and start sketching right no he he stylized certain pictures of a woman and you know with a dress on and a child a female child with a pigtail and a father you know and arms outstretched and that became the signature of stark black and yellow sign uh, that was put up within a mile of the freeway they were put on the 805 freeway and the 5 further north up near Camp Pendleton right well what did that do that did alert people and Caltrans called me and says don the you know, the deaths have dropped almost to 20, 20% of what it was because people were slowing down. They were going, oh, my God, you know, in America, we don't see pedestrians on a freeway. Right. In Mexico, any, any roadway or, road or railroad is a pedestrian right away, believe it or not. Right. That's the way it is. Even, even highways, freeways, tollways. But here, uh, American Motors, they, they, they couldn't adapt to that. But no. they did when they saw these signs. It said, Precaution or caution, slow. And Caltrans even created a billboard that was a drawing, a replica of that picture of these 12 to 15 people in a row stretched across four lanes with traffic barreling down. They created this giant billboard and they put it up at the rest stop on Camp Pendleton. Oh. And written in Spanish wow. and English, it says, it said, uh, don't risk the lives of the ones you love. Don't cross the freeway. 
Right. The smugglers would do that because they were trying to get around sure. the Border Patrol checkpoint up there. Mm-hmm. Down here, they were just trying to get to a smuggling vehicle down down in uh, San Ysidro. But up on Camp Pendleton, it was, it was a tactic smugglers would use. Yeah. Do you think your Army training helped you at all in those early years, kind of like staying up late or seeing things at night? Do you think any of that kind of came into play? You know what? You know what? My job was as an observer running convoys through these jungle roads uh, in Vietnam. And occasionally I would take a ride in a light observation helicopter mm-hmm. in order to, to see if I could identify where uh, the, the NVA were massing. I had to try to what I call organized confusion. I mean, the jungle, the hills, the roads, it's just a mass of shit. But there are certain little indicators, broken branches, uh, footprints when I'm, when I'm on the ground. Uh, from the air, I would see uh, dust. So that's organizing confusion. That's exactly what photojournalism is. I love nothing more than going to an arena with 70,000 people and finding the one reveler, the one rock star lover that, that exemplifies the joy of music, for example. Or going along the border where there are hundreds, if not thousands of people with you know one thing on their mind, not looking back. Try to find that one face, that one smile, that one tear, that frown, that, sh- that, that sh- shredded shoe or hole in the pants that symbolizes the struggle in that particular story. Right. And that's how, that, that's how the Vietnam War enabled me to survive. And every shot I took in Vietnam was so I could live. But you know, with a camera, every shot I take lives forever. The subject never dies. Photographs are immortal, like nothing else in the world. Yeah. It's because when doing my research and I'm watching, you know, your progression, it's unbelievable where you put yourself, whether... It was in foreign countries, right? You're a lone soldier in South America and named the country Central America, which was an absolute war zone between Nicaragua and El Salvador. I mean, those times, you really had to have some training. You couldn't have been, and I I mean this not against anybody, but you couldn't have been a 26-year-old girl, woman, going to El Salvador and trying to be a journalist and not thinking it's going to be a rough time for you. I mean, you had to have those military eyes in the back of your head and the extra sensory of knowing what was going on. No, it definitely did help. But Matt, I have to tell you that I don't believe photojournalism is gender specific. Um, Those female photographers I was with in the Afghan war, the Iraq war, um, in Mexico, in Central America, uh, they were in the, (coughs) excuse me, in the minority. But... um, they had the same skills as I did. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, in Iraq and Afghanistan, they had the advantage because photographing females in the Islamic world is, wow, that'll, oh, get, yeah. that'll get your head chopped off. Um, so, But my military training was important. And I'll tell you where I think I can answer your question the best. When I was at the Orange County edition, we were always being asked to do have ride-alongs with students from the local colleges right. and photo programs, mostly in community colleges. And I took this one guy around, you know, and he was kind of, well, yeah, well, he was he was getting bored after a couple hours, or me trying to find some wild art. He said, "You know what I want to do? I want to be a war photographer. I want to go to war, and I'm going to get make famous pictures. That's that's what I want to do. I don't want to do what you're doing." I says. 
what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And I, and I wrote back to the photo advisor in that school. I said, don't ever send anybody like this again. I'm sorry. It, it doesn't work that way. If you can't get excited about a ladies' aid society or, uh, you know, water running in a, in a creek or lightning in the sky, you can't get excited about a war. You can't find it because it's not in your soul. It's not in your heart. You don't go out. Yeah, you know, inspiration from a fantastic photograph is very deceptive and it's it's important to inspire youngsters but you look at a picture and you say yeah i could have walked up to that fence and watched those people jumping over that piece of cake i can do that or you know i can go into iraq and embed with the marines and that'd be totally fine no it's it's far deeper than that most people don't know the value of a photograph, I'm not putting a monetary value on it, but if I was a freelancer, you know how long it took to get the guts, to get the knowledge, to get the equipment, to get the resources, to find the contacts, uh, to understand what's going on, how long that takes? I mean, there's there's value in that. Oh, and, yeah. And, and it shows in in the masters that the, the, that I admired, James Noctway, you know, Gilles Perez. Right. You know, the, these, yeah. So... You can't just, you know, jump in with all guns blazing. It's not going to work. No. no. As, so, a ma- as a matter of fact, some photo agencies have stopped hiring freelancers who want to go to the the post-Afghan war, the post-Iraq war. Right. Because they were getting slaughtered. They were getting killed. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. Right, right. So that was my point. That, do you think the military training obviously helped you a little bit, gave you a little bit of a yeah. second idea of like, oh, okay, you don't go run into the dark building to make a picture right. every time. No. It, it, and it was I mean, not you got a, robbed at a fence, for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Right? Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, you've seen those stories. You were there in El Salvador. I mean, you wrong place, wrong time. You get butchered with everybody. Right. Yep. Gangs, war, they don't care who you are. No, they don't. Yep. Oh, he's got a camera? We don't shoot. No, that's not how it works. No. Slaughter. All right, so... Let's say by the 80s, are you feeling now like you have a full command of this craft? Are you feeling like there's nothing that can not be thrown at me I don't understand? Do you feel like you're a full-fledged Don at this point? (laughs) (laughs) No, because sometimes I'd get assigned to the World Series or the Super Bowl or a basketball game or the San Diego Soccer's game. And let me tell you, I was a fish out of water. I had no fucking idea what I was doing. <laughs> Number one, I, I, I didn't understand what Andy Haight, uh, you know, one, one of the masters of sports photography tried to teach me. He said, Don, you got to anticipate the play. Your camera's got to be there before the pass shows up. I says, well, how the hell am I supposed to do that? <laughs> I don't. You know, all I know is football has, you know, three bases and basketball <laughs> has a net. That's all I know. That's all I care about even. I don't even care about this. It's already happened last night. Why do we have to do it again? Uh-huh. So, but anyway, so sports, I, I didn't care for. I, you know, it wasn't, I had no command. I mean, you ask if I was ready to throw anything at me. No, don't throw that at me. And don't throw celebrity portraits at me. Oh, my God. I would get diarrhea. I would get afraid. I would have nightmares the night before. Because I I don't know what the hell to tell to some famous person. You know, okay, look out the window or look like you did in this scene in the movie. (laughs) You know, how dorky was that? Oh, jeez. I mean— so the Times realized over the years that there were masters of sports. There were masters of portraiture. Right. 
And there was one guy who knew the border like nobody else, and that was me. You were the Don of the border. Yeah. So when they sent you, when you did that kind of stuff, did you feel like, okay, I've got this. I have a style. Has your style developed at this point? Like, you know what you're going to do when you go there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't have a shot list because I found that when I did have that, then I was only looking for that. Yeah. Okay. So you really have to be so observant of, of things slightly outside the story. You know, I might be assigned just to, to find, okay, photograph the new tall steel fence and the lights. Well, there's <laughs> tons of stuff going on outside that right. know, simultaneously. Yeah, shooting a fence, boy, that's sexy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you ought to try to shoot a guy harvesting lettuce. Well, that's, that's another <laughs> challenge. <laughs> but it can be done. Right. It can and be, you did it. It can be interesting, yeah. When do you leave, I guess it's not leaving San Diego, but they shut down San Diego Times and you become OC Times. Yeah, the San Diego edition right. of the LA Times. Yeah, it was losing a million bucks a week or something. But, wow! But our circulation had skyrocketed to well over a million and a half on Sunday, not in San Diego. San Diego, Overall, had, right? San Diego had like four or 500,000, which was incredible. That's and a even big the Union number. Tribune had a lot. So we were... We, we were actually stuffing the uh, advertisement box because it's all based on circulation. Sure. The, how much you can be charged per column inch of advertising. It's all based on circulation. Now it's hits on the, on the <laughs> oh, web. God, yeah. yeah, clicks away. Yeah, so, um, but nevertheless, the, the expenses became more than the paper could, could keep. Yeah, right. I mean, we had luxury offices in a high-rise downtown. We had a huge dark room. We had staff cars. All everything was paid for, and we're going on foreign assignments. I was right. So then they, that, that dissolved. We had a great party at the Belly Up Tavern, and and then uh, we were given a choice. Okay, you can either go to the Valley, which was way too far for me. I don't want to go there. No, I mean, or good you Lord. can go to Orange County, and they were going to keep one photographer in San Diego, and it, I was. Non plus that it wasn't me, but I didn't play politics very well, so I, I wasn't chosen for that. Um, so I was ripped away from the border, and I was made to drive 60 miles every day. So In, in the Costa Mesa. Yeah. <laughs> and even worse than that, I had to shoot color film. That's what I was going to say. First time is, in my life. Is this, this is the first time now. First time I, on a daily basis I had to shoot color film. How'd but that she, go? Well, you know, it's... I, I I took advantage of it, you know. I what I year is this? Capitalized on it, boy. I know. I, I think it was ah ninety three, ninety four. Is it ninety three, ninety four? No, maybe later than that. I'm so bad at names no, and numbers. Okay. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm just asking technologically. So you, you know, your guys are shooting negatives. or still shooting negatives. Okay. Yeah, color negative film. All right. So yeah. at least they didn't throw the wolves at you and say slide film. Good yeah. luck, no. kiddo. No, no, no. right. So and then and then after I was there, but about did that a feel year. exciting though? Having color now, your greens are green; they're not gray. I made goddamn sure it was exciting. Yeah. Oh God, yes. Yeah. Suddenly, I was seeing like blue. I, most people see, <laughs> <laughs> which in some ways is kind of boring, but yeah. I made it exciting. Well, and, but now things become rich, right? Like now you can you can when you saw a color and you're trying to see how can I make that silhouette of gray or this or that now you've got colors to play with sure no it's 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 all part of the it's all part of the the joy and the give back of photography yeah 
And then, uh, you know, I was there maybe a year, and then uh, digital scanners became uh, use every day. And computers, oh, Jesus Christ. That, I mean, I could type like a crazy, but computers befuddled me. And we had Kodak scanners, and we'd have to scan every negative. And mm -hmm. it would take like 20 minutes to scan a single right. single uh, uh, 30, 35 yeah. millimeter negative. And then anything you did do it in Photoshop, like just uh, lightning, it would take enough time where you'd go to the cafeteria and get a cup of coffee. Right. And you come back and do it. Crop it, color correct. Yeah, do all this. those oh. things took from one to five minutes right. to happen. It's it's funny how they told us, oh, this is going to speed up your life. <laughs> it's going to be so much faster. And you thought, like, I can make a print in the dark room so much quicker. Yeah. Dodge, burn, yeah. make some adjustments, and I could be out of there. Boom. Yeah. Now I'm sitting there waiting for this damn thing to go from 1% to 100 and just finish. And then Nikon came out with a digital camera so you didn't have to scan but it had this huge side pack, you know, <laughs> yes. and, a, and a couple of the prima donnas got those. So I continued to shoot uh, negative film. Good. And then they get, and then they got even better, and they were still big and bulky and slow. But you know, they then then we got rid of all the film cameras. Let's pause for our sponsor before restarting our conversation with Don about the process into covering Enrique's journey, the photo essay that won him the 2003 Pulitzer Prize. And then in the year 2000, I was assigned to do Enrique's journey, you know, the, right. the, the migration so from let's, let's Central Let's talk America. about that. How does that start? Who says, okay, border guy, call him up, well, come downtown and make a, let's make him have a meeting or what is, how does that happen? Oh yeah, all those things happen. But it started in the hallway uh, on the way to the cafeteria in Orange County when Colin Crawford came up to me and said, hey Don, um, Sonia Nasario's got this story that she got from her maid about uh, <laughs> she, had, she left her child behind and she came up to Los Angeles to clean houses and sent money back. And uh, sounds and then, like a bad sitcom. <laughs> I mean, I got a maid, she's got a house. I mean, that's how these things evolve. Just that simple. Yeah, that's how it happened. And then the maid told Sonia, you know, and there there are children the age of my my children who try to come and find their mothers, and I'm worried that my child's going to try to find me. And then they use these freight trains. Well, that became sort of the uh, the story that had never been told. I mean, the act of migration was nothing new, but migrating as a child under the age of 18 on the freight trains of Mexico by themselves had never been reported. Yeah, that's a new twist. So that was a good one. So Colin Crawford said to me, Don, um, you know, uh, this is a story that I don't think can be so, can be done, so I want you to do it. So I thought, thanks a lot. I was both, you know, flattered that he had faith in me. Right. And challenged because it was two things that I love, migration and trains, which I had always loved my whole life. So I accepted it. We had, a, we had a reporter in L.A. I went up to L.A. And Sonia and I had our first big fucking argument. <laughs> now, what's that argument about? Uh, she said, now, Don, uh, you know, I did a story about a year ago with uh, another photographer and uh, on uh, addiction, and he was always in my picture. He was always in the way. He was always trying to talk to the subject. You know, when I'm out there, when we're in Mexico and I'm interviewing somebody, I want you to shut your mouth and sit down and don't take pictures. He says, well, yeah, okay. I mean, what am I going to do? Right. Say, hey, screw you. Right. Go to hell. Taking it off. Taking right. off the subject. Yeah. But mostly we got along, 
Uh, and then more often than not, we got along like a married couple that should have been divorced a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but did that yin and yang help the story, or do you think it hurt a little bit? You guys kind of... Well, it, it really held me back until I just got so courageous that I I called uh, Colin Crawford and I says, well, let's, uh, let me give you one example of Sonia's complaints. She is somewhat handicapped by her weight and by her acrophobia. And she said, Don, I don't ever want you to jump on a moving train. I said, Sonia, how can I get on a train? If it's not, we got to wait for the yard dick to come up. We got to wait for the railroad people or the police to show up before we get on a train car. And then we we all sit up there with them. I can't do that. No. So for a while I did. Then we get on the train and start moving and and then I jump off and on when it was going slow enough and she got flaming pissed. Would she join you or would she just be lost? Oh no, she no she, way. she was sometimes in my picture when there was something really, really dramatic that I wanted to photograph and I would ask her to move a little bit and she would not Nope, not moving. Not moving. I'm not moving. You well, have you have to work, shoot around me. Oh jeez. Well, that was it's it's a laundry list, but, but I, it's okay. But I mean, but it, but that's is that that's why you work better alone. Yeah, that's what I'll give Sonia credit for being a tenacious, very very um, detail oriented reporter. She finds what was true, and the story happened this way. Enrique was a boy that we found at the Texas border in a shelter in the Mexico uh, side. A priest had called us um, and said, hey, listen, I think we have somebody you might be interested in. We went there and interview him, interviewed Enrique ad nauseum. So he told us the route he took. So we then went back to his grandparents with, with permission and okay. followed his whole route. So her job was to confirm or deny the things that Enrique had explained to her. My job was to make pictures of children coming north alone uh, to find their mothers, but it, none of them were Enrique. The only pictures I have of Enrique was at the Rio Grande River where okay. we, we interviewed him. And I would go out at night while he was sleeping next to the river and Sonia was in the hotel. So. But anyway, that's, that, that's how it started. That's how it began. And after a while of uh, being somewhat emotionally and physically restricted by her, because she was really, really jealous. Secretly, I think she did not want these pictures to overshadow her story. And that's, and that's something that's happened since the beginning of newspapers <laughs> and photography, right? You get your writer and your photographer that are perfect together but there's a weakness and you got to kind of figure out how that's going to work boy you hit it on the head matt you've got to figure out how to make it work because i sat in my hotel room and i said don you've got to calm down there are enormous amount of resources invested in this story and it's a good story and i'm not going to you know be nitpicking and whining so they say, huh? well, we're not going to do it. Or come home, we'll put somebody else on. Right. We'll find somebody else. Yeah. Uh, no. We'll I, just I, shut up and do maybe a lousy job, but just shut yeah. up. And it wasn't because I wanted to lose the story, but, um, you know, as, as a mature adult, that's not the way to do things. We, we had, we, and, and we did, we did work it out. You right. Know? We ended up not being fans of one another to this day, but we produced a six-part series that was Fucking-tacular. And, and you know what? That kind of goes back to what you just said about parents. Sometimes you have a husband and a wife. Together, they don't work. But as long as they make a beautiful child, yeah. 
right? <laughs> nice. That's it. And then uh -huh. so what you guys did in that six-part series is yeah. you made a beautiful child. We had sex couplets. Right. We're you fantastic. Hate, you hate each other to death, but you made a good kid. Yeah. And we never let on, no, you know, you don't, to anybody except my closest people and you. Right. Uh, really. But well, you don't need to exchange Christmas cards. You just got to make a good story. And sometimes I think that gets overlooked that I'm only going to work with somebody I like. Yeah. Well, that's going to might limit you. Yeah. So do you guys sit down, you, Colin, and everybody else on the staff and say, this is the plan that we're looking for. We're going to give you X amount of days, X amount of money, X amount of resources. Let's see what you can do Yeah. early on. It started that way. You say, give, give us... Just give us a ballpark plan. And the first idea was to go for two weeks to a month to find a candidate. Right. A child under age of 18. No, we didn't have anybody. There was nobody. So we went along in Rio Grande to uh, Laredo and Nueva Laredo, the two companion cities um, in Texas. And, you know, we walked the streets in 108-degree weather, and we went, you know, I'd find little kids. And sometimes they were not right. They weren't going to find their mothers. They were going to find a brother. Um, some, some, you know, and then we found Enrique in the, in the shelter uh, at Parroquia San Jose, and, and the priest was very kind, and he understood, and he was welcoming to us, and we could interview people forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and the kids could stay there for two weeks, and then, wow. they had to, they had, and then they had to move on. And most of the times they had nowhere to go except down by the river. Right. So that became part of the story, too. So That is an unbelievable process, though, that people, I think, don't realize is it's a baseball game. It's Monday, starts at 730. A project like this does not start on Monday at 7.30. It starts when you find the story. Yeah. Like you have an outline, but you got to find the kid. Yeah. And I would find kids on my own. And I would sleep on rooftops where they did all night long. You know, I would walk through the town. They would wash their face in the, in the, uh, uh, the, the, the Central Plaza fountain. They would beg. Uh, yeah. Yep. So... Even though those children didn't become the hero of the story, they, that wasn't Enrique. Right. They were ancillary supporting chapters in some of the things that Enrique experienced, you know, being on the street, having no money, washing cars just to get enough money to eat. Right. Yeah. So let's say, what, two, three months in, you guys got to feel where the story's going? Yeah, we, we worked it for a month, and we felt we found somebody good, and then Sonia wanted to go uh, fly fishing, so we stopped the story. And, but it was, it was okay. It gave me a chance to, excuse me, to come back, process my film, and go over it all with Colin. Okay. Uh, you know, to see, okay, w what's good, and what are you missing here? So we'd make a list of stuff that, you know, would, was good. I would look at my technique, find, make sure I'm not repeating myself, repeating my right. technique. I was going to ask Make sure the that. cameras are functioning properly. Yeah, and things were looking good. They were looking good. And then we go out again. We went down to Central America to Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Uh, and we met both sets of Enrique's grandparents, uh, paternal and fraternal. And, uh, and worked that story. And Sonia, I'll give her credit, she did the legwork, she did the uh, setup, so the family knew, uh, you know, I would be with her, and it was okay to photograph. And, yeah, so I, so I would go around the same streets Enrique did, the same pool, pool 
parlor hall with the same drug dealers that he fell fell out with. Right. Now, you made that decision, this is going to be film, or was there any pushback, make it digital? No, the way digital was, Nikon had digital cameras, but from my limited experience doing daily assignments, the batteries wouldn't hold up. Right. And plus, uh, how to unload the the cards. Yeah, would the I have to carry a little computer with me, and then what if that got banged up or something? Yeah, so, so, they just, so I decided film. Okay, we're going film. Yeah, so I, I, I left with maybe 50 rolls of film. Okay, so then what's your process? Do you say, what am I taking? How many cameras, how many lenses, you know, batteries, backups? Like, where, where, where do you start thinking that process through? Well, I knew I had to travel light because I was going to be jumping freight trains. I was going to be you know? Did you know that from the beginning you're jumping trains? Well, or yeah. It evolved the train? No, no. The trains were going to be the, uh, the leading character. Okay, so they it's were, a player in this. They were the scene. Yeah. Okay. So we worked it from both ends, you know, but, uh, from, from whence Enrique came, uh, the journey on the trains, and then what happened after that. So I knew, I knew that would be a component. And I knew I'd be in, in subtropical Mexico. I'd be there would be inclement weather. I'd be riding buses, trucks. I'd be hitchhiking, jumping trains. So I traveled light with only two Nikon F5 film cameras okay. and two lenses. I think it was a uh, 24 to 105 and an 80 to 200. Just okay. two lenses and a tele extender, a doubler. Right. Uh, I had one flash, one strobe, one strobe. Okay. 50 rolls of film, a notebook, and a backpack, and that was it. Batteries, just double A batteries. Yeah, batteries for the only thing I for the film camera. Did I need batteries for the camera? Yeah, I needed. Yeah. I needed batteries for the motor driving the camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know when I needed more batteries, I could buy them. Yeah, that, that's. I mean, not, I wasn't going to a foreign country for right. Christ's sake. No, it's only Mexico. <laughs> it's only Mexico, which is not foreign to me. <laughs> not at all. I mean, but for you, yeah. you should be a partial citizen at least. <laughs> Good lord! Believe it or not, you know I use those fifty rolls of film. I swallowed them up like nothing. Would, I'm, I'm not a heavy shooter, but there was so much that demanded my that I not ignore it. That's what I was going to say. How much? I mean, there must have been so much at your attention that you just wanted to get. Oh. So what did you do after those 50? Well, then I bought more film there. And there. Believe it or not. Whatever I they had. Buy Provia film. 400 or whatever that was. Yeah, whatever the hell it was. I right. tried to find Fuji, Fuji Color 200 and 400. Right. Those two. Yeah. And I, I, and I sometimes would wipe out the camera store. Said, so, oh geez, it's like Christmas. This green goes taking all the. Oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know what I would also do, is I would, after the second part of the story when we found Enrique, I began to realize, you know, some of these towns and streets are dangerous, and I got two cameras around my neck, and I didn't try to hide them unless I really felt threatened, and I would zip them in that little backpack. Right. Or if I had to run or climb, uh, but I began sending my film home every. So often, two just weeks. FedEx it or whatever you could, just get it home. Yeah, I'd go to a shoe store and ask for an empty shoe box, and I'd go to a, uh, a, a newspaper stand and buy a bunch of newspapers, crumble them up, put the film in there, and I'd go to a shipping company and Xerox my journal, which uh, had all of my IDs, all of my impressions oh about boy. what I saw every time, and I would ship it back via multi-pack. Right. It was like... Mexico's version of FedEx, yeah, that's FedEx got, but that's, a lot slower. Yeah, that has all your captions and ID and, and everything, everything. Everything, yeah. And I would keep Xerox copies for myself as well. I made two copies. Um, and I would send it to L.A. And they would, the, and you know what? They didn't have the guts to process it. They let me come back and process it. <laughs> oh, and that was fine. Yeah. And I did, I did it, the whole three months of shooting in three sections. So I went back twice. Twice. Yeah. Okay. 
So let's talk about the beast, the train. Yeah. Because those images off that, to say they're exquisite, fabulous, beautiful, scary, frightening is not enough. But you're not 20. You're, you're. I think I was 55. Yeah. I mean, that's what I looked into my math doing it. I mean, so you're risking your life with these children who are, as you photograph, some are losing their legs. Where are you thinking this through going, okay, I got to make sure my cameras are secure. Don doesn't do anything stupid. You know, how was that first moment you grasped that beast? Well, other than waiting for Sonia to find a railroad representative or a Grupo Beta representative to protect her and the train to be dead stopped and to climb on, you know, after that yielded nothing worth shooting. Right. I was walking through a, a freight yard on the Guatemala-Mexico border, and there was this little boy sitting on the rails, and his name was Dennis Avon Contreras, age 12. Squeaky little voice. I said, this is the poster boy. I know it's got to be Enrique because we've already got his route sure. and everything. But, you know, I followed Enrique as often as I could. I mean, I followed Dennis. Dennis taught me to tame the beast. He told me, Mr. Don, Mr. Don, this is how you get on. You, you get on, you know, the first ladder on the freight tar in case your feet slip underneath and you fall on the rails. You have maybe one second before the second set of wheels comes and chops your legs off. Yeah. Thanks, said, Dennis. Said, don't get on the last one because there's only, you know, six feet in between the two sets of uh, wheels on the two cars. Oh. And, he, and, and then, you know, he taught me how he begged food along the rail line from people because there was, he had no money. He had nothing. Right. And then one day I went out before dawn walking uh, the freight yard and I was climbing up into these hopper cars and looking in and I got to the top of one and I peeked in and there was Dennis sleeping on a bed of gravel with, with a mattress that was a, a big paper bag and a blanket of another paper bag. So I carefully took one picture, click, and he popped up like a, like a blow-up doll, bam! He, all it was was that one quiet click. He was so alert that he and his companion, did, who didn't uh, awaken immediately, but he looked at me with those sleepy little eyes and his crumpled little shirt that he had had uh, all the way up to his eyes, and he pulled it down. Well, that was Dennis, the guy who taught me earlier how to claim, train, uh, um, how to uh, tame the beast. But he had made trips, and, and I'd lost him, and then he'd get arrested and deported back to the same freight wow, yard. you recognized him. Yeah. So he became, uh, you know, my hero, and, uh, and I ended up riding several hundred miles with him. And all along the way, he, would, uh, he taught me how to roll my R's, in, <laughs> and I taught him how to say, well, Dennis, and this is all in Spanish, when you get to the United States, you're going to have to ask for food. And you're going to have to do it in English. And I would say, I would say, let's practice this, Dennis. Say, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. So he would do it in his Honduran accent. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. <laughs> no, hungry. I'm hungry. And we did it thousands of times. I'm hungry. You know, and, and you know, during, during the course of a day when we would be separated for a little while. Right. Yeah, we'd come up. The first thing he would look at me and say, I'm hungry. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I never gave Dennis a nickel. I never gave him any water. And I made sure that whenever I took a bite of a candy bar or a drink of a water out of my backpack, I was never in sight of anybody. Right. Because that would have been the ultimate insult oh, absolutely. to these people. But Dennis would when the train would stop for not an immigration checkpoint, come back with bottles of water and tortillas and little lengths of sugar cane, and he would pass them out to the older guys, who he told me, these are the ones that are going to protect me from the gangsters. Uh-huh. And once he gave me a stalk of sugar cane, and, you know, I wasn't hungry for six more hours. It was great. It was Unbelievable. Fantastic. So that's how, we, that's how we did it. Were you becoming recognizable as the train gringo, the guy, yeah. like, yeah, I was. Yeah. Because you must have been the crazy man. Like, oh, it was. Yeah, I was. I didn't try to disguise myself. No, like, you couldn't. Like anybody. I was just me. I had a baseball cap on and just plain clothes and black jeans and a black shirt. And a, But I did have a yellow scarf, which I don't know. But uh, I was getting brutally sunburned. But anyway, yeah, that, inevitably, inevitably, migrants who would jump on the train along the route or at a stop would come up to me. And ask me, how much are those cameras, you know? And my answer was always never to reveal how much money I made or how much the cameras cost. So I would say, well, like this camera is worth more than a used car. And they'd look at me and one guy said, well, how much is a used car? And I would say, oh, less than this camera. It's cheaper than this camera. <laughs> I never wanted to reveal, a, right. you know, a dollar or a peso figure. Right. And then after a while. That's a bullet, uh, a bullseye on you. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I found that most Hondurans were uh, unbelievably dedicated to their destination, and they were, you know, they were kind people. I mean, I dropped a lens cap once down uh, in the bottom of a hopper car, and a guy climbed down there, and he practically was upside down, and he retrieved it for me and just handed it to me. Just the sweetest people. And one day I'm sitting there, and Dennis is next to me, and some new guys are coming across the top of the train, and they're... And, and Dennis is looking at them. I'm looking at them. And Dennis looks up to him as one guy opens his mouth and he says, don't even ask. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, you're a father, so, and, and you're a man, and you're a human. How did you keep your emotions in check? It was hard. I mean, there must have been times that, I mean, you had to have just sat there and go, oh, my God, yeah. what? What is happening yeah, here? It was. There's one particular story uh, I tell with the picture entitled Bound to El Norte, which became the signature metaphor picture for this series, Enrique's Journey. It shows a solitary boy sitting on top of a long freight that's disappearing into the fog around mm -hmm. a curve. Beautiful photo. Yeah, that became the cover picture for the book, the cover picture for the series, the cover picture for the reprint series, which was all done in one volume. Um, so I, I had seen this, spotted this boy three cars ahead of me. I'd been driving, riding all night long through uh, mountain tunnels from Veracruz up to uh, Mexico City, which is 5,000 feet. Bitter cold through the night. Bitter cold. I mean, maybe 50 degrees, but when you're dressed for the hundreds, it's cold. And right. the train's moving 30 miles an hour. So anyway, so I had been sheltering myself down uh, in, in a part of a hopper car where you could be out of the wind. And, and migrants would light fires to keep warm. And then just the crack of dawn, I climbed up and I looked down. And there's this little anomaly on top of this smooth gray freight train. I said, my God, it's, it's a kid. It's somebody sitting there by himself. So I had been 
riding freight trains for two and a half months, and I wasn't irresponsible. I was really, really skilled. So I ran full tilt, cameras banging, my backpack to my side, and leaping over uh, the gap in the in the freight cars. And this was up near Mexico City, where the the train was speedy, much faster. Oh, way my in the Lord. south, it just went like a Tunerville trolley because the the mushy uh, roadbed would shake the train so violently sometimes it fell off the track. But up near Mexico City, the train could go 40 or 50 miles an hour, and it was going that fast. So I'm running against the wind and across these freight cars, and I come up behind this boy, and there's so much noise from the wind that he didn't budge. And I pattered to a stop behind him, and I took two horizontal pictures and two verticals, and I said, wow, that's, this, is, this is amazing. And then we end, end up inside the fog. So I instinctively slid my backpack, which had my Nikon journal that I kept all of mm -hmm. my uh, notes in. Um, so I went up beside him, and I, I, and I was just about to ask him his name when I saw that he was shaking uncontrollably, just shaking. And he was sniffling in this sort of a hiccup. I don't know if you've ever seen a child maybe that's been crying for so long they can't quite catch their breath. You know, they're, they're sucking in air and then there's a glottal stop. Right. That's what he was doing. He was crying and shaking. I think he was shaking because of the cold or maybe he was just sobbing for some unbeknown reason. And I looked at that and it was like somebody just hit me in the back of the head. It stopped me in my tracks. I'm right on the edge of the car, just about to go around in front of him and he still hadn't seen me and I backed up because in my head came this ferocious memory of when I was in the army talking on the phone uh, to my dad and crying because I'd had some bad luck in my officer training class and I was crying and this, this other cadet, this other officer candidate had come up and caught me caught me crying and we were supposed to be trained killers and brave and just you know right. without emotion and he caught me and it was so profoundly embarrassing that that was the thought I had when I saw this child I said I'm not going to do that to another human ever right so I backed off and I violated all of my personal and professional rules of photojournalism always get the backstory for the picture but the picture lives by itself it's one of the few pictures that can survive without the words. Oh, absolutely. By far. And in that series, and yes, it won the big prize, but there are multiple single photos in there that people would give an arm for to have in their career. The two children on the horseback, <laughs> right? That one's gorgeous. But there's another one where it's the photo you take looking down at the gentleman in between the two cars, and he's holding on, it's, he's leaning back. You look at that, and it's, there's all kinds of emotion going on, but there's danger. There's, you know, it's storytelling. People, people wouldn't put their life in risk to do half of what these people are doing just to come to America. And you're there capturing it. Like, that is stunning to be that brave to make some of those photos, to be jumping on a train that's moving <laughs> 40 miles an hour. I'm guessing you didn't tell Mrs. Barletti this until you got back because she would have wringed your neck. I mean, the <laughs> things, I mean, he, did even Colin, when he got back and he saw some of these photos, did some of these people say, 
what the fuck were you thinking? Well, ironically, you should ask me that because at the end, after Colin and I had already edited every single picture three times, he was extremely tenacious and careful and concerned. You know, I looked at him and I said, Colin, you know, I don't think I got enough here. I don't, I don't think I th I, there's still some more that I would like to do. Maybe I could go back another two weeks. Would you go? And he looked at me and said, are you kidding? <laughs> he saw it. Right. He saw it was all there. But going back to this, this picture uh, of Santo Antonio Gamay gripping the, uh, the, the rail of, of the end of a boxcar, almost as if he's crucified. Yes. Because he's got his head back and his mouth open, and I'm looking straight down. I'm laying on top of uh, the next freight car with Dennis, the little 12-year-old, lying down next to me. And when the man, whose later na name I uh, later learned was Antonio Gamay, when he leaned his head back, you know, I had already had the camera to my eye because there was some symmetry going on and a lot of repeated things, the slow shutter speed. Uh, but then he leaned his head back and he opened his mouth. And that above the squeal of the wheels and the, and the buffeting wind and the thunder of the steel cars, I couldn't hear if he was screaming or crying or praying or yelling. And I even had to kick myself. I had to say, Don, push the shutter, push it now, push the now, push it now, push it now. Because something came through that camera lens, that, that image, and shook me to my soul, to my journalistic soul. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> because, you know, it was back to how I think some of the best pictures ever made are of the tiniest little fleeting moment that has great storytelling qualities, unexpected, and quite often it's in the expression on a face that you can tell the greatest yes. story of human migration with a man screaming his lungs out. And he later told me, I was praying that I wouldn't be caught a third time and put on the bus of tears and deported back to Guatemala, 300, 200 miles. Right. That photo, you need, to, you need to just look at it and you can hear the sound of the train. <laughs> you can feel the wind. You can smell the trains. Like, And it's amazing. This is not a video. This is not a scratch and sniff. This is a photo. And you can feel it all there. That's when you know you've taken a perfect photo. And I can't tell you how many lectures uh, that I did, and I've done hundreds, invited as, mostly after the Pulitzer was won. Uh, but I also teach and mentor at universities and high schools. Inevitably, somebody who likes photography but doesn't understand why, the question will come up, Mr. Bartletti, were you there when those pictures were taken? <laughs> right. Yeah, I said, yeah, I was right behind the camera. Well, how could you be that? How could you do that? I says, well, that's what you have to do. I couldn't phone anybody. I couldn't uh, make up a quote. I couldn't interview anybody. That's the way it happens. And that was the challenge of um, doing a story about something that had already happened. That was Enrique's journey. It was past history. Right. When did you feel you were confident to being on that train? Because it's a big part of the story. Yeah, it's, it's the major. It's the major player. It's the drama. Um, well, I, I think when, when Dennis confided in me about how to get on 
And then I started seeing other little things that he did while he was on top of the train, exclusive of just hoping the hell you survive and you don't get thrown off by gangsters. He started teaching other children that he met how to jump in between freight cars. And he taught me that. He says, what you got to do is you got to stand five steps back from the end of the freight car and you got to put your eye on a spot that's three feet in front of the end of the car and you got to not take your eye off it and you got to run and jump and hit that spot with your shoe. He says, because if you're just about to jump and you look down at the beast, at the jaws of the beast, the, uh, the couplers or the rolling wheels, it'll sever your limbs. If you look down, you're going to go down. So you want to look at the top of the freight car, and then you'll end up there. God will take you, he said. <laughs> Dennis. <laughs> oh, oh, my shit. Lord. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable those kind of images are made. And people, and people if, if you don't look at it and go, <sighs> and take a breath, like, you're not human. I, I mean, I remember when that came out, and I just thought, wow. I think they should shut the Pewitzer down. It's done. <laughs> I'm not saying that because you're sitting here. But, I mean, it it was, I don't know who the second was, but they were way far behind. <laughs> and they were both friends of mine. <laughs> well, it happens. Oh, um, boy. So, okay, so, because the train to me, I'm a train guy. You're a train guy. I love trains. Would you only dr jump on trains that were flat roof? You never jumped on a cylinder train, would you? Uh, the danger of doing that was, even though so many migrants told me that it's the best car to ride on, because once you're on top, a gangster can't jump from one tank car to the next, because the space in between is too great, and there's not a foot pad. It's right. just that round thing. The only thing you can ride on is a little cupola right smack dab in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's like a little platform. Right. But you climb up a ladder on the, in the middle of the car, and it's pretty hard to do that when the train starts moving, but um, you can. So that was a car I didn't like to ride on very much because I, I would be stuck on it until the train stopped. Sure. Yeah. So, and boxcars I wasn't interested in because you'd have to be inside and there was danger of the door, the train slamming on the brakes and a door sliding shut and then you'd be locked in there nobody give a shit and people have died. That was a writing part of the story that I could never photograph. Oh. Uh, but I rode in hopper cars. Hopper cars are... Uh, you know, like cardboard boxes, real low, and, you, and right. you could, yeah. Often they had sand or gravel or railroad ties or something really stinky and ugly in them. Now you reference these gangsters. Yeah, go into that. What what was that challenge? You're just trying to make your pictures. You're trying to do your job, and now you got these other entity you got to deal with. Yeah. Who are they, and what are they trying to? Well, the Mara Salvatrucha or the MS13 gang was born in L.A., born from children from El Salvador, brought to the United States as children, grew up uh, to be sort of lost and unmotivated by school, and they formed a gang for their own survival in the United States. Okay. After they did their prison time uh, for drug dealing or violent crime, they were deported back to El Salvador. So they were in a country that they had no idea. They didn't even speak the language. Wow. That's where the Mara Salvatrucha was born. In El Salvador, uh, from those migrants who were deported from the United States, and predominantly from Los Angeles. 
So the Mara Salvatrucha, uh, yeah, yeah, they became gangsters in every sense of the word, and they are probably North America's most lethal gang. Most lethal because they're they're savage. They're, they've turned into uh, kidnappers, murderers, drug dealers, drug users. Um, so they established their ownership of the freight trains through Mexico from Chiapas, the most southerly state of Mexico on the Guatemala border, up to Oaxaca, a, a distance of two or three hundred miles. And they would own the freights. They didn't they didn't drive them. They didn't set the uh, schedule, but. Uh, what they would get on these freight trains. They, there would be a group in the front near the engine, and, and the engineers, they had, they had no control. There was very little law enforcement except for the uh, Grupo Beta, and they were afraid to ride it too because these gangsters were really creepy. Wow. So it would be a group would get on in the front, in the middle, and the end. Migrants would get on unbeknownst that they're there, and then the train is rolling along, 20, 30 miles an hour, too fast to jump off. And they would just, in a pincher movement, go up to every migrant and say, give me your money or your life. And some of them that would say, oh, I don't have any money, but they all had some money. They right. were like walking bank accounts. Not a lot. You know, Enrique had $7. Which um, is a fortune. <laughs> well, yeah. And when you can, you know, rob 60 people, then it's a profitable enterprise, sick as it is. And some migrants would say, I have no money. I really am poor. And they would tear off all their clothes, throw them, and throw them off the train, leave them naked. And then they would push the naked body off the train. This happened to Enrique. He was stripped to his underwear and shoved off the train, going full speed, broke a tooth. You know, he, he was rescued the next morning by a farmer. That, that, was, that was a great story. So those were the guys I was morbidly afraid of. Yeah. Oh, I said. I'm nervous now. Oh, you know, here I am walking you know, like, like a tourist with hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of, you know, good shit on my shoulders. Oh, man. And. In, in the in the photos, you've got photos. I mean, the gear's one thing, but those images. You oh, the images to... became far more valuable than the cameras. Yeah. I probably would have would have given them up if I was allowed to keep my uh, my cameras. Right. But I want to tell you about one one instance. Yeah. Where I came face to face with one of the most notorious Mara Salvatrucha gangers, a legendary guy called Blackie, and we had searched the prisons in Tapachula. And we did find another guy named El Loro, or the parrot, or the parrot, who was a gangster, and he, he was accused of two murders. And he was on the trains with these other Mara, Mara guys. And um, but then Blackie had never been caught. So here I am up at Mediasawa. You know, I had already gone twelve hours without the reporter, uh, and the train stopped for the night. And I spent the night. Uh, from the kindness of the switchman who said, okay, we have a little bunkhouse. You can sleep on the cot for the night. And then the next morning, I wanted to get on the same train because I'd already photographed a lot of children who had been on there for the previous 12 hours. And I wanted to continue the journey up to Orizaba, which was, you know, the, 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 uh, the kindest state in Mexico in Veracruz. For a lot of reasons, I wanted to go to Veracruz and I wanted to go with these kids. So... It's daybreak, and I'm at a junction of two railroad tracks, and the train is moving back and forth, assembling its cargo of, of uh, freight cars. And, it, you know, migrants would jump on when the train started moving forward, and then it would stop, and they'd all jump off and run back into the jungle, and it would back up again. It was like a dance. I called it like a ballet. Wow. Because they, they didn't want to be on the train when it was stopped because the yard security or 
the Mara Salvatrucha would pick them off like picking peaches off a tree. So here I am, okay, the train had stopped, and it started, and it stopped, and it started, and I'm, I'm there, you know, photographing kids jumping on and then jumping off. So I'm there just kind of waiting for, like, man, what the fuck do I do? And then everybody started walking away from me. I said, wow, the train's not moving. Why, why are they leaving? And I look <laughs> up, and out from the jungle comes this guy who, who had gray khaki, or brown khaki pants that were down to his ass. And he was swaggering, sort of. You know, he had his cap on backwards. Right. And no migrant ever dressed like that. No migrant wore his cap backwards. No migrant had sloppy pants. And I could just tell, this is trouble. I said, I'm fucked. I'm all by myself. He comes right up to me, and, and, and he looks right at me. And I said, hi, how you doing? He said, I'm... And then he reaches into his pants, and I says, oh, fuck, now what? He's going for a gun, maybe. He slowly pulls this three-foot machete out of his pants, raises it up in the air, straight up at the, at, the, at the dawn sky, and then starts banging it on the railroad tracks. And it, it rang like a bell. And everybody who hadn't already spotted this guy took off, took off like rabbits. Gone. And then I was by myself. I, there was... And I, I, I'm convinced that if I had gotten in trouble on the train or injured, somebody would have helped me. Migrants are, they're sympathetic people. And people should have recognized you by now. Yeah, yeah, they have, especially after the previous 12 hours that made me somewhat of a fixture. <laughs> yeah, that nobody bothered me. Nobody, right. begged, nobody begged from me. Nobody, you know, put on airs or ran away. They, they just knew, hey, this guy's part of the scene. So, um, so... Uh, yeah, I don't know why, Matt, but into my mind came Blackie. I said, whoa. I said, hi, you wouldn't happen to be the famous Blackie, would you? Because I recognized he was a gangster. I said, and he looked at me and he was noncommittal. I said, you're Blackie, aren't you? I bet you are. Yeah. I said, if you are Blackie, you're pretty famous. And let me tell you what story I'm doing. And I went through the whole scenario about being from a big American newspaper, the whole migration. And I said, you know, I know, I know your group. They ride the trains and you are really helping people. I wasn't being disingenuous. Right. You, you are enabling people to move, even though it's a, it's a terrible tragedy to rob them first, you know. Well, you know. Yeah, it was the undeclared <laughs> ticket that they had to buy. But anyway, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm trying to save my own frickin' skin. Sure. So I said, you know, you, you could be an important component of my story. And, you know, you don't want to go through your whole life only be in name only. You know, why don't you let me make a portrait of you? And that took a lot of guts. And he looked at me and he just slowly shook his head. Nope. I says, uh, okay. And then in my head, my head's going like ready to explode. I thought my eyes were going to fly out of my head. I said, I don't have any more ideas. I said, well, Blackie, you know, if, if you don't want to do that, he said, well, maybe, you know, um, and then the train horn blew. And the train began to move. And it's, it's like a machine gun, bam, 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 bam. as the couplers, uh, the slack is, uh, is tightened. Right. They, they snap with a gunshot. Fire. They all start linking hard. Yep. Bang, bang, bang. And, and, and above the clatter, I said, hey, Blackie, I'm sorry. I don't have time whether you want a portrait or not. <laughs> I got to go to work. So I just turned around and I didn't run, but I ran, but I walked swiftly, pell-mell, <laughs> down the freight train track towards the end of the train. 
And I only one time glanced quickly back, and he was jumping on the train. And I decided, well, maybe I could jump on really far back in the train, but then his companions will be back there. Right. So I gave that one up. And I was surprised to find the Mara that far north, but he was there. And that, I thought, was the end of the story. I was going to be either robbed or knifed. Left somewhere. Yeah, just left. So how did you do that route where you're taking it north? Did you turn around and just take the train back south? I mean, how do you do that back and forth, back and forth? Yeah, when I, uh, when Sonia was doing some long-winded investigation and, you know, interminable interviews with officials, not migrants, um, back in Tapachula, I got on the train, you know, and she was really pissed that I would do that alone. But then I rode up to where I almost got robbed, and then I took a bus back. Okay. Yeah. Take a and bus we, back. Then I rode the freight train again. And then, so I would try to ride each 200-mile route twice to maximize my exposure to children under the age of 18 looking okay. for their mothers. Did you take a conscious effort to use some of that technique of slow shutter speed? Yeah, I did. Because, um, you know, I wanted to show that this is a moving object. This is, we're not in a freight yard and people are lounging on the end of the right. freight car. So slow shutter speed became a technique that I turned to again and again. Um, in fact, so much so that it became a cliche and I had to figure out different. And then another of my favorite compositions is perfect proportion. You know, same thing on the left side and the subject in the center, mm -hmm. violating all the rule of, rules of thirds. But I don't give a shit. If it's there, I'm shooting it right. that way. Um, the rule so, could be broken at yeah. some point. So slow shutter speeds were important, especially on one picture that I called hazards overhead. Uh, when migrants at the border in Texas told me that we'd be riding through the jungle in Chiapas and a low-hanging branch would throw us off the train or rip our eyes out or tear our clothes. Right. So, you know, it, it was a lesson that I learned to watch out for with the help of migrants who were yelling out this word, rama, 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 which meant branches. Right. And before right. I realized what that word meant. I was swatted. I didn't fall off, but it was a wake up. Sure. It could take so, you right off that train. So when I heard that sing song uh, warning from the front of the train again, I got ready and I set the camera at a slow shutter speed because I wanted to get that those branches whizzing over the tops of these guys who were had their face down on the top of the train. Right. So, show that motion. Yeah, show the it, motion. Yeah. Right. Did you pick one and say, I'm going to go 60th here, 125th? Because you got a train moving at anywhere between 25 and 40 miles an hour. Yeah. You don't want it to be to too low and lose the actual subject, and he right. looks blur. So yeah. did you kind of find a sweet spot after a while? Yeah. Well, for that picture, when I knew the subjects were as static and motionless as I was, because we were both hunkered down right. face to face, very close with a wide-angle lens, but the train was moving, but not, not 50 miles an hour, maybe 20. Right. So I knew, I think it was a 15th of a second for that, to okay. get enough blur. Yeah, click, 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 motor drive. Right. Your advantage was is you and your subject are still on the same plane. You guys are moving together. Yeah. Well, it happened again when I thought, uh, you know, let's do a panchas when those children started galloping out on a horse uh, from in between coffee and banana. And that's a tele trees. telephoto lens, right? That was a 200 millimeter telephoto, right? So what had happened there, there was this boy and girl galloping out through this green lutch chapist countryside and they began racing the train. And the editorial glory of the photo, the importance of it, besides being beautiful to look at, two children on this 
huge horse, right. where the migrants on top of the train were actually being entertained. They realized, hey, we're having a race. It's us on the beast against the beast galloping alongside. And they were whistling and clapping and screaming and yelling. And, and the brother and sister, I assume, on the horse were smiling and looking square at the migrants galloping along so boldly and nobly. And I'd chosen a slow shutter speed because the subject and the train were moving about the same speed. You nailed it. Yeah. But three of the four pictures were hopelessly blurred. And that's typical, <laughs> right? It's always like that. Yeah. So when I'm looking through a loop on the, uh, uh, at the negatives on the light table in the L.A. Times, and I came to that picture, I just screamed. Oh. <laughs> the detail in that photo that always gets me, it's the girl in the back who's not <laughs> on the saddle. Right. She's on the horse's rump. Yeah. And she's suspended in midair, yeah. as are her dark, beautiful, curly hairs. And her eyes are as big as saucers. But she's, you know, her brother sitting in front of him is, I could tell it was his father's horse because his feet couldn't, couldn't uh, reach the stirrups. Right. And he's bareback and bronze tanned, holding a frayed nylon rope, which were the reins. Mm -hmm. And something my, my, my wife said, you know, he looks so noble and so in charge. And he was ramrod straight in that saddle, even though his feet weren't in the stirrups. Not at all. He was yeah. in total control. And he won the race. Yeah, he's in he bliss. He the beast. Yeah, he's in that. It's crazy where you're at and where you're taking that photo. Those children in that image are having the time of their life. Yeah. They're not. Poor. They're not in a third world country. They're, they don't look hungry. They are having pure joy. Pure joy. You know, it's, it's one of those universal truths about life in spite of uh, all the bad that we often look for in photojournalism. You know, that was a moment that has appeal. And I've gotten letters and comments from around the world from dozens and dozens of countries. People asking me, oh, can I buy that? And, and the picture was recognized by the Pulitzer uh, uh, Committee at the Museum in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And they blew it up 10 feet wide as the uh, at the entrance to the Pulitzer uh, photo salon right. in the museum in Washington, D.C. And, you know, hundreds of people have sat on the bench in front of that picture and taken their pictures and many of them and sent to me. And one of my colleagues, the L.A. Times, uh, uh, Rick Loomis, said, Don, you're the only photographer at the L.A. Times who's got his own bench <laughs> in Washington, <laughs> Well, it's such a heart-wrenching story, and that photo is a, a little beacon of light in it. You know, the whole story overall is is tragic because people are being forced out or pulled out or dreaming that something over the horizon will help them live a better life. So it's it's stress. Everything is done voluntarily. They're leaving voluntarily, even though, you know, the slow death of poverty isn't really voluntarily. voluntarily. Um, but they're leaving. So the story is kind of sad overall. But there were shocking periods of joy. And that was one of them. The, the Chiapas racers. Another one were the food throwers of Veracruz. These, this, this was legendary. And there was a legendary woman named Maria that practically every migrant at the Texas border told us about, said, you know, when you get to Veracruz, it's the kindest state in Mexico because there are people on the side of the tracks who will throw tortillas or bottles of water or sweaters or, you know, something, you know, bananas. So that, that was a picture I had to have it. I had it on my list of things I had with the food throwers of Veracruz. It's, it's interesting. Like, so you say your list. Are you 
as it's going, as the list evolving, getting bigger, smaller, as you're seeing these details? Like, obviously, when you started this story, you had no idea about these tortilla throwing women. And, and now, okay, you hear about it, got to get it. Yeah. So you're adding to your list as no, it goes? For, no. Fortunately, I'd, I had written it down before we even started the migrant route. So you knew about it? I knew about it. How'd you find it? That's a good detail. Yeah, because the, the migrants at the Texas border were very specific about where it happens. It always happens in the freight yard in Orizaba, Veracruz, right before the train starts climbing uh, the mountains and going through the tunnels to Mexico City some 14 hours away. So it, it was always down there. For some reason, people who have very little themselves are sympathetic to their Latino brothers and sisters who are passing by. Right. And, and they, uh, yeah, a brother and sister would throw... Uh, uh, um, sweaters and pants and used, whatever they used, had. used clothing. Do you think having knowledge of speaking Spanish helped you while you while you were embedded in the story? Oh, yeah, I had, I had to do it. Because if you had an interpreter, they might not give you the same information. Because oh, that, that that loss of relay. Oh maybe? my God, that was the problem in Afghanistan, where my my interpreter who spoke Arabic, you know, would answer the question rather than telling me what the man said. Right. Yeah. But fortunately, I'm not bilingual, but I know Spanish very very well, well enough to get in trouble and out of trouble. Mm -hmm. But there are long periods of time where I'm trying to put people at ease, to make them understand that I want them to be appreciated. I understand their reasons for moving, and I want you to understand my reasons for being here, paying so much attention to you, because you're having an effect on my country, and you're having an effect on your own country. Right. Good, but and, good and bad for both countries. Yeah. I mean, it's a yin and a yang that's horrible. So to be able to articulate that was essential. And I would always explain that I'm a journalist from a big American newspaper, and I will show the truth if you'll let me stay close enough to you. That's all I want to do. I, I have no opinion about your right or uh, to leave your country or cross my border. Most Americans don't know you even have a name. Right. But if you'll let me get your name and show your face and show your struggle, I promise it'll be right. It'll be truthful. It'll be honest. And I remember one occasion where uh, one man said, you know, nobody cares about us except two kinds of people. The priests who want to help us and, and, and the uh, policemen who want to hurt us and rob us. That was the case over and over again. That was one part of the story I could never get was a policeman robbing a migrant along the trail. And they were on top of the Mara Salvatrucha. I mean, there were many layers of danger for these migrants. So, And then another guy on another occasion after I did my mantra, which I had perfectly memorized in Spanish about being a journalist and their story <laughs> was important. Um, you know, some guys, some little kids would go, yay, take my picture, take my picture. And others would go, I'm out of here. They would run away for right. some reason. Why no part of you? Yeah. And others were, maybe they didn't understand or they were stoic, but, um, you know, after a while there was, there was no fakery, there was no hiding, there was nothing. There was just, they were back to their own loneliness or their own dreams, which I was there. To I got to imagine having some knowledge of the language and being crazy enough to ride that beast. They were kind of figuring, all right, if this guy is working for the government, he's crazier than hell because <laughs> he could have taken us off anywhere. But you're now being a part of this journey with us. Yeah. We'll open up the veil and let you see a little. 
Well, it did that. It did that. But I don't want anybody, I don't want your listeners to think that I was trying to be a migrant, that I was suffering like yeah, they no. were. I was under the same danger. Certainly the beast could have eaten me. Sure. Yes, it could have. But, you know, Matt, at the end of a 12, 14-hour day, you know, as thirsty and hungry as I was, I could get off that train and I could go to a restaurant a few blocks away. I could spend the night at a motel. Mm-hmm. I could buy a bus ticket and go back and do it all over again. But I immersed myself, embedded myself in this subculture strongly and honestly enough to extract the truth. Right. I didn't you, have, you, you have to. I didn't want to die doing it. A dead photojournalist makes no pictures. Yeah. When into the story did you start to believe you had something big? You know, when I, when I took the first ride with, with Dennis— because uh, he was up there on the top of the train explaining why he had left his impoverished colonia in San Pedro Sula, which subsequently in the next 14 years became the most dangerous city in the, in the world for, for uh, random violence and, mig- and uh, migrant uh, killings by gangsters and drug dealers and so forth. Well, Dennis told me the horror stories he lived through and, uh, you know, about... Uh, about what he wanted, about how he wanted, like Enrique did, wanted to find his mother. And he had seen television shows with, you know, American movies with people in fancy cars and with nice paved streets and right. pretty houses, pretty girlfriends. Yeah, he, he wanted that. I know he did. Uh, so when he when he was 12 years old, he had enough guts and he was a smart kid. He was, I mean, he was intelligent, not only motivated to get the hell out of his uh sister's clutches who admonished him, don't ever leave, don't ever leave. But nevertheless, they raised him in the absence of his mother. And the father had long left the family, as had uh, Enrique's father. And it's it's that way in many families in mm-hmm. Honduras. They're uh, single-parent fa- houses. Uh, so, um, yeah, so Dennis would tell me that. And because I understood the language, he told me intimately all the things that he wanted and dreamed about. And one day I asked, one night we're rolling along through the Chiapas countryside, and I said, Dennis, what do you dream about when you're laying on top of a tank car and you're just about to roll off? What are you dreaming about? He said, Mr. Mister Don, he said, I dream about three things. I dream about finding my mother. I dream about learning English. And then when I get to the United States, which he called Los Angeles, the United States of America. He said, when I get to Los Angeles, I'm going to help the children on the streets because I know how children can die on the streets. Like was his experience that that, that motivated him to leave San Pedro Sula. Right. Do you know where Dennis is now? Well, I caught up with him in San Diego. One year after he had arrived, I was confounded by my search through elementary schools since he was only 12. I figured I went through, I wrote letters to every school district in San Diego County because he had a phone number that had a 619 area code, and that's San Diego. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I'm going to the state of Los Angeles, he said. Uh, but I said, no, this 619 is San Diego. He didn't know San Diego from L.A. didn't right. know anything. He didn't know California from anybody or anywhere. So when I got back, I started searching. I, he must have gone somewhere, and I concentrated on San Diego County because he had that number. Well, I never found him. I never found him. And then I was invited to Honduras to give a lecture uh, to mothers of the uh, uh, departed children who had left to sure. go to the United States, even left them. They hadn't gone, but they had left. 
And um, there was somebody who knew San Pedro Sula, and they thought they knew where Dennis had lived. Tell me about that. What? what? what the so I went to that address, and lo and behold, it, his sister Sandra answered the door. Sandra raised in, uh, Dennis from, I think it was age three to age 12. The, the odds. The odds. It's, it's like fate, I'm telling you, Matt. So I found his, and she had her mother's address in San Diego. In, in an area, wow. in an immigrant area of San Diego that had a lot of apartments. And immediately upon my return after this uh, invitation to, to lecture uh, in Honduras, I found Enrique's mother. And Enrique was there. I just, I mean, we both almost collapsed in each other's. I mean, it was like seeing ghosts. Sure. We saw, we saw one another. So, uh, you know, I was a little nervous. His mom didn't, did, yeah, I don't think uh, uh, Dennis told his mother about me, the pictures or anything. So it, it, it was a little bit tense. Awkward. So, yeah, yeah. And she was a little ashamed. She didn't want to have her picture taken. But nevertheless, I made a few of, of Dennis helping her cook. So I said, okay, you know, I know where they are. I'll come back. So I went back a couple of weeks later and, and I brought photographs for the mother to show her her son making this tremendous journey. But Dennis wasn't home. So I said, wow, where's, where's Dennis? And he says, I don't know. Sometimes he doesn't come home. And then she confided, both looking at her son laying, sleeping on top of a freight car, uh, you know, sleeping uh, in a hopper car, you know, with dirty clothes on. She started crying. He said, I never should have left my son. I sent him money sometimes, but I never should have left him. And she started crying. She threw her keys down on the dining room table. And in my picture of her sobbing are the photos that I brought her, her keys over here, and tears coming down her face. And she confessed. She said, Don, I have to tell you this. Dennis has gotten in so much trouble that I, couldn't, I can no longer afford to bail him out of juvenile court, juvenile hall. So I gave Dennis enough money, and I sent him back to Honduras. I go, fuck. Fuck. Are you kidding me? You sent him back. So a year later, I get a phone call at the LA Times, and it's Dennis. Because <laughs> I had given my card sure. to him. You yeah. know. So he called me Donato. He started calling me Donato, because Don in Spanish means somebody intelligent, old, and rich, and right. neither of those. <laughs> so he called me Donato. And he said, I'm in Tijuana. I'm in Tijuana. I've got to come back. I've got to come back. I'm trying to get back. Can you come down and help me and give me some money? Ooh, that was a hard one. So I did go back, and I met him on the streets of Avenida Revolución, where he was trying to get a job in a, in a call center, in a call center that had uh, English and Spanish-speaking people. And call centers can be representatives for American companies. Okay. They're cheaper. They're, yep. I mean, they're in, it's a big business in Honduras, too, but it's also in Tijuana. So, yeah, I mean— I showed him, I took lots of portraits of him walking along the streets, and I, I just told him, you know, Dennis, I just can't give you any money, I can't help you. And then, now, why did you think taking photos of him walking the streets was like an idea? Like, Because the story's done, so what are you still thinking? Or is the photojournalism side of you just still keep running? 
yeah, no, no. My story, my coverage of migration for survival never ends. You know, Enrique's journey was long gone. It was right. Two, that's done. It was two years old. But Dennis represents the continuation and the obligation. I think the, the supreme obligation of a photojournalist is to find out the consequences of a picture or the consequences of a circumstance. And Dennis represented that to me because here he was already had been deported and he was trying to come back. And and I photographed him peeking in these call center places. You know, he didn't have enough courage to ask for a job, but he, he had already begun to speak English. He was trying to learn it himself. And then, uh, you know, I left and he called me a few days later and said, Don, I need $100 because I, I, a smuggler will help me cross the fence. You've got to help me. And he told me an intimate detail where he was hiding out. And I never showed up. And I think he got really pissed, really pissed. But the story goes on. One or two years later, he calls me yet again. He says, Donato, I'm back. And I've changed. I've got a girlfriend. I go to church. I help my mother. I've got a good job. Come see me. I'm in La Jolla. I said, oh, God, here he goes. He's what is he, 16, 17 by now? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he, yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah, the numbers are a little confusing, but he's, he's a mature young adolescent. Okay. So he's got a job. He said, come down and see me. I'm in La Jolla. And he gave me the address. And he started working for uh, an American landscaper, doing landscape of mansions in La Jolla. And true to form, Dennis is there still with his hair perfectly combed, his clothing, he's natally dressed, not like a, you know, not like the latest fashion, but he's got nice white tennis shoes. He was always perfectly dressed, even on the trains. People would give him outfits, throw food, throw food and clothing at him. So, and he was always very courteous. He always spoke very nice. He said, Don, Donato, uh, I got a girlfriend. I got a little baby now. I'm, I'm here. I'm living here. And I'm going to be a good man. I'm going to be good. And then about... A year later, I hadn't heard from, again, this gap. I said, oh, shit, now what's happened? And I got assigned with Cindy Carcamo to go back to Honduras because that year, 14,000 children had showed up at the Texas border on the U.S. side, unaccompanied by parents. Right. There was this wave, this phenomenal wave of, of parents trying to give their pay smugglers to take their kids across the river. And the rumor was, once you set foot on American soil, they can't get rid of you. Anybody under age 18 can't be deported. So it, it was an incredible phenomenon. So I was sent with Cindy Carcamo back to Honduras trying to figure out, well, we already knew why it happened. We were trying to translate it and, and see, see mothers who had sent their children. Right. And at the end of it, I said, you know, Cindy, I brought along Enrique's address just on a lark, we're in this city, and we're with a fixer who was an investigative reporter for a newspaper. He knew the gangsters. He knew the gang hangouts. And I showed him this address in this colony and said, oh, that's one of the worst. Oh, that's of, one course. of the worst. Of course. That's one of the worst. I said, listen, you got to take me there. I got to see. I haven't heard from Dennis in a long time. I don't know. On a lark, maybe I can meet his sister. Well, you know, we went to the police station because there were no addresses on any of the houses. And even the police were leery about helping me. I said, well, you go that way. And then we'd ask a local and said, oh, you go that way, which was the opposite way. They were trying to get rid of us because they knew we weren't from there. Right. Yeah. Even though my fixer was Honduran. Doesn't matter. You're not. And you could yeah. be trouble. Well, after, you know, getting the same 
answer twice, we'd ask the same question three times. If we got two answers, we'd go on that as a lead. And we ended up finding the house. Wow. We knocked on the door. And I asked the neighbors, hey, is there a guy named Dennis who lives here? Yeah. yeah. So I knock on the door, and Dennis answers the door. And it was like well, the time that I had seen him at his mother's house in, apartment in San Diego. It was like we were each looking at ghosts because many years had passed. We hadn't seen one another. And he was there, beautifully bronzed, no shirt on, and a huge tattoo across his left uh, uh, bicep that said, Sandra, his sister who had raised him in his mother's absence. He adored her. So he was working at one of these call centers in San Pedro Sula. You'll never believe who his client was. He speaking perfect on accent in English, was working for the Boston Herald. What? <laughs> he was the guy that, uh, you know, anybody would call and say, my paper's late, I didn't get it, or it's all soaking mud. Dennis, three, four, five thousand miles away, would, you know, placate uh, the, the caller and, and resolve the complaint. Right. Excuse me, Catherine. Let me get your newspaper to you immediately. Yeah, yeah we'll have one to you within three hours. Yeah, this is Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, That you, is crazy. Yeah. So I told, I, I, I asked Dennis, you know, can I go where you work? Uh, I'd love to see you in there. And he was really reluctant. He said, no, you can meet me after work. So I met him outside the gates, and he didn't want me to take any pictures. So I said, well, can we go back to your house? And he explained, no, this is a, a den of gangsters. And if they see me with you, they're going to wonder, who the hell is that guy? Right. Who's that guy? You put a mark on him. And you can't do you? that. Who are you? And how come you're, you have a good job and you're not part of our gang? You know, so he was, I mean, he was shaken in his boots. He didn't want to see me anymore. So I did take him to dinner. We didn't take any more pictures. But then he confessed all, even more of the story that he hadn't told me when he was on the train. He told me the stories about how he got across the border, how his mother hired a smuggler. And, you know, so that was incredibly valuable. And I wrote a front page story in the LA Times called uh, How Dennis Helped Me Tame the Beast. I was 55 and he was 12. That was my first paragraph. Right. Yeah, it was an incredible story. What an offshoot to that original story that has become. I mean, it's, it's amazing how something as simple as finding this 12-year-old boy who tells you, put your foot here so you yeah. don't lose a leg, oh. becomes a, a journey, what, six, seven, eight years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, little Dennis, I, uh, I wanted to adopt him when he was on the train. He was that endearing. Right. Such a sweet, gentle boy. Where his, you know, his uh, his age and his looks, you uh, were so improbable to his, his his veteran train riding skills. He knew how to do it better than anybody I ever met. How was okay? So now it's a six part series. L.A. Times. You guys sit through. You go through it. Stories are written. Photos are put together. Pages are laid out. How was the impact? First one comes out. Does it get a big uproar, big backlash? Well, I, I, I have to tell you why there was a huge uh, impact. And it goes back to the publisher and the editor. 
who called a meeting, John Carroll and John Perner, and these are the two big guys. These are the two guys that run the paper, make right. every editorial and financial decision the shock at the LA Times. Yeah. So they convened Sonia and I and my editors and the word editors, the layout people. We're all in this big room and I'm showing um, we had made slides uh, before digital projectors mm -hmm. came out, slides of uh, uh, about 50 photos that Colin and I had edited. We thought the essence of the story. Are you nervous? Well, yeah. I'm sitting. I'm. I'm like, you know, a little street street vendor sitting in between the World Trade Tower centers. These guys are like six six, you know, really influential. And I'm going, holy fuck! They just spent tens of thousands of dollars on me, and now they're waiting to see. Well, uh, impress me. Did boy. I get it? Yeah. So I show them. And I show them, and I do all the talking. I told Sonia, don't say anything. And I, and I didn't make it laborious. I, you know, I, I not like my lectures where I can get bound up in details that are interesting. But, you know, I just wanted to keep the story, keep the narrative rolling so they would feel there is a beginning, a middle, and an end. How long did you talk for? Probably 20 minutes. Okay. And at the end of that, you know, the screen turns black and nobody says anything. I swear to God, it was an hour or two, <laughs> but it was probably only 10 seconds. And that's a long time for a journalist not to say anything. Uh huh. And then John Carroll said, this is one we're going to do right. <laughs> wow. How'd that make you feel? Wow. That's great. And then everybody applauded. <laughs> wow. I mean, that, yeah, because, I mean, you're, you're, it's... It, You've put all this effort, the two of you, into this project, and right there in that moment, it could have been like, eh, we're going to put it on a Thursday edition. Yeah, we'll move it inside on yeah, the second day. Yeah, second day. Yeah. But it will, it'll look great in black and white. Yeah. Or what they said. So what they had done outside of my, uh, uh, my hearing was they had renegotiated ads with movie studios and airlines and supermarkets to open up six open pages for six days. They weren't consecutive. First we ran two two installments, then we'd skip a day, then we'd run one, skip a day, run another I two. I remember that. Yeah. So um, It drove me nuts because I wanted day three so bad. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like, <laughs> I need to know. Yeah. But um, the irony of all of this devotion to photographs, to making photographs drive the narrative of the story, was unprecedented in most newspapers until 9-11 hit. Right. That's when people demanded to see the news. They didn't want to just read about mm -hmm. it. And even the LA Times ran full-page pictures of, of the horror and the aftermath. And then, you know, I went to Afghanistan, uh, you know, a month after 9-11, even before Enrique's Journey was published. So right. when it came time to decide on this, the blueprint had already been laid out. Okay, these pictures are going to run big. We're going to run them right. And they enlisted two of their top designers, page designers. They drew maps. They got artists together. We did uh, narrated before the internet. The internet was in its infancy. Yeah. yeah. So, But Sonia and I had, had spoken about certain circumstances that we encountered and how, uh, how we ended up with that picture or that paragraph or that subject or that character. So that was all part of it. It was huge. And let me tell you, People called me up 
fact, one, one woman who was a photo professor at Palomar College, Donna Cosentino, and I, I was out of the state at the time. She later called me and said, you know, I was in Barstow, and I went to a 7-Eleven on a Sunday, and I looked at the newspaper rack, and I gowed, holy shit, I bet Don Bartletty did that. She didn't know I was even doing the story. And she goes up to it, and she sees, I mean, the picture ran five columns in a six-column pa- uh, front page above the fold, and she bought the paper. And that was the beginning. It was an avalanche of emails and phone calls and a few letters, including a letter from the, uh, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Wow. And even a phone call <laughs> that I didn't take but came to the editor, to an editor who answered the phone, and that editor later told me, said, yeah, this lady calls up, you know, and during the first day we didn't publish after two days. She's on the phone and she says, where's my Enrique? Where's my Enrique? <laughs> so people were looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. I was hooked. <laughs> because they were seeing and reading something that they had never seen before. No. And it was, a, it was treated like a story, uh, a six-part installment story that you wanted to follow. Like there wasn't a, eh, I kind of figured it out after day two or day th- No, I, you kept, you wanted more and more and more. Yeah. And that was the best part of it. And let me tell you, it was the brilliance of John Carroll who said, this is one we're going to do right in that meeting. John Carroll was the editor. He was on the floor every day. He was the guy who said Sonia was having a terrible, terrible time writing the story. It took her a year and a half, but 9-11 was a huge interruption in between publication time and when we finished the reporting. So anyway, he came up with the brilliant idea of making this a narrative story, not say, not eliminating all the he, sh- he said, she said. Uh, he went there and just writing it, just like not stream of consciousness, but, you know, mm-hmm. quotations that were... Uh, uh, supported and confirmed with footnotes later. Right. Like cultural anthropology. So it made it read like, wow, I'm on that fucking train. I'm really with Enrique. And it was masterfully written by another writer. Sonia had done the brilliant reporting, but she was having a lot of trouble, you know, getting it down. Right. So it, it, it was actually written, ghost written. Uh, okay. If she ever heard that, she'd never heard it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... The process, because I've never won the Pulitzer. So what? what's your process? What are you doing? You're putting it together. Yeah. I'm not thinking about any award. I'm not thinking about anything except... Because this is, this, what, it's a, almost not a year, but it's months later. Yeah. No, oh, it, oh, it You're is. You're on to the next thing. It's and, more than a year. I finished yeah. shooting it in uh, uh, October of 2000, and it didn't run until September of 2002. So there were two full years when it sat and cooked and matured and fermented. Um, So, yeah, so when it starts coming out, it was incredible. Um, It was Colin Crawford re-edited every single frame again and again and again, and he never edited. He's he's in charge of the budget and and everything but editing, but he said, okay, I'm going to take this. And I I was so happy because he was more careful than any other daily editor I had ever run into. Right. I said, what a shame he's not on the daily uh, editing, every day, editing yeah. desk. Yeah, every day. So I have absolute adoration 
for that man. He did a great job. Because he never missed. And when I had a, when I said, hey, Colin, I think I like this one better, he would explain very kind. But Don, I wasn't there, so the picture doesn't read to me. I mean, you were right. there. You, that's why I respect editors. Yeah. And when I was emphatic about certain pictures, I said, no, no, I think it's this one, Colin. He says, okay. Let's print them both up. We'll give them both to the uh, design editor. We'll see which one fits. Mm -hmm. Which one works out. He was never, hey, fuck you, I'm the editor. He right. Never I know. Him. He I was know. never like right. that. Or he would never get upset. Say, Why are you wasting my time arguing? And I became more diplomatic myself. Yeah. Right. So the award go. it goes towards the awards. Yeah. What happens? You get that phone call. Yeah. The place I got the phone call was I was laying in a bomb crater in Iraq, in Nazaria, Iraq. Uh, I went, I was assigned uh, to the war as a unilateral. I didn't want to embed. So I went there with, uh, you know, with a reporter, a fixer who could both drive and shoot. And we're laying in our little camp near uh, an abandoned Iraqi uh, military base. When my Thariah cell phone, this ginormous, gigantic piece of <laughs> telephone, <laughs> <laughs> this half as big as a computer. You put it up to your head, it takes two hands. But anyway, I said, holy shit, nobody's going to call me on that phone unless it's something, like, really important. Right, yeah, because that's normally you sending out, not someone calling you. Yeah, so so I'm laying down, and, and it's scratchy, and there's always, like, a three-second delay in between a response and then another, you know. That's a satellite phone, correct? Satellite, yeah. Yeah. So said, hi, Don, this is John Carroll calling you from Los Angeles. I said, how are you doing, Don? You're not going to fire me here, are you? I said, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, I wonder what happened. I know. For I him said, to call you, did that get you worried? Yeah, because I've been sending in pictures from the war every day. I said, oh, wow, maybe there's a problem. I said, yeah, no, no. I think I told him, you know, it's another apocalyptic day here. I'm sorry to tell you that, uh, but, you know, and I'm getting as close to the story as I can. I'm trying to stay. And they said, oh, you make sure you stay safe. You know, another thing I want you to know, Don, is you've just been awarded the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> I go, what? I sat up in my sleeping bag like I started yelling. I said, what? Really? Me? It can't be. Because, you know, there were three finalists announced maybe two weeks prior to that, and, and the Pulitzer Committee ended up squashing that, that leaking, intentional leaking. But anyway, I'd kind of known about it, but honest to God, Matt, I had no clue he was calling about news, that, news yeah. about that. Much less me. Much less me winning it. So the, the other two reporters and another photographer from McClatchy News said, what the hell's the matter with you? What are you screaming about? What's going on? Tell us. Is there something going on? You better not keep it from us. I said, I just won the Pulitzer Prize. No. Oh, so this woman jumps up, starts taking my picture, <laughs> and on my reporter, you know. Now you're the news story. Yeah. <laughs> but there was an immediate uh, reaction to my benefit because the next morning Mark Manier who was kind of a standoffish punk ass reporter very good but kind of yeah I, I mean he didn't really care for photos he always made me sit in the back seat so the next morning he said Don you can ride shotgun now <laughs> I said whoa I've arrived I've arrived finally I knew I didn't know it would be this good <laughs> thanks a-hole yeah <laughs> 
Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. We're going to, like I said in the very beginning, I'm already asking you to come back because you are so thick and rich. I must have you back again. How much time has passed? Only two hours and 42 minutes. You're, you're kidding. And I know you've got dinner, and I don't need your oh. daughter to call me up and beat you senseless. But I'm going to tell you right now, I can't thank you enough for your time, what you've meant to journalism, what you've done in your story, your work, and how you helped out some little 20-year-old <laughs> many, many moons ago at OP Pro. Oh, wow. That'd be you, Matt. Yeah. Thanks to all of your, your listeners, because... Journalism is worth repeating. Absolutely. And without it, we're going to right to hell. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt. All right. This is Matt Brown, and you listen to Just a Good Conversation. Please hit the subscribe button as well as the like button.